This is the Manga Mavericks podcast from allcomic.com, episode 23. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Sid, and I am very excited today because we are talking about a series very dear to my heart, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure in honor of its 30th anniversary. And joining us today is my Joe Bro, V-Lord, GTZ. Uh, Joe Bro, that's an interesting term for it, but <laughs> hi everybody. Uh, hey V-Lord, I'm really glad I can finally get to talk to you personally on the show. Yeah, definitely. This is going to be fun. Yes, it is. But first we have some housekeeping to do and some news to cover. First off, now that Magnum Mavericks is about a year old, we've set up a poll for you guys to make, a survey, in which you can give us some feedback on the show, make suggestions, and I really uh, recommend you guys take the survey because I really want to get your guys' feedback and it will really help us improve the show, so... The link to that will be uh, in the description for this episode on all comics. So definitely take a cl- click on that and uh, fill that survey out. Um, so I probably should have asked this before we started recording, but um, I guess wh- wh- when do you think we should close the poll? The poll will be closed on our first year anniversary date, January 27th, 2017. And we'll discuss the results of the poll on our first episode of February. All right, so basically by the time episode 24 comes out, uh, the poll will be closed, which I do want to talk about. Uh, I guess that's a good as transition as any to to just announce here that um, I think from now on, we're going to be shooting for a Friday release every other week. Um, we Because we've gotten some criticism in the past about... Um, about how sporadic some of our releases have been. And again, we all do apologize for that. Uh, but we're going to try to be a little more organized about that. So basically every other Friday is going to be the day where you can expect a new episode of Manga Mavericks for sure. Yes. And another thing we should mention is that after our JoJo's manga fight, manga fights will be taking a short-term hiatus until the summer. But... You can still expect a good amount of content from us because me and We Lord here have started up a new movie-focused podcast called Movie Mavericks, where we will be reviewing comic and anime-related movies. Our first episode is already out, where we recapped our favorite movies from 2016. And our next episode, which should be out in a couple weeks, will be a review of One Piece Film Gold. So definitely look forward to that. And and hey, maybe maybe if I can see the movie in the next week or two, maybe I can be on. I don't know. I'd like to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be cool. But you know, actually, speaking of our manga fight, um, I don't know if it really gives away the magic or not, but uh, we do have that recorded already, and uh, we're hopefully gonna be releasing that uh, next Friday on the twentieth. Definitely by the twenty seventh or so at the latest De- like you know but before before the end of january definitely but uh i am going to be shooting for the 20th on that so uh look forward to that it's going to be uh our jojo centric manga fight between v lord and maxi and uh i won't say anything about it just i don't want to give anything away but it was fun 
I could say mm-hmm. that much. I don't think that gives anything That's away. A lot of fun. I'd say for me personally, it was pretty intense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All I'll say is that it, it's a close one, you guys. You're going to be on the edge of your seat wondering who's going to win that one. Yeah, it was very close. Hmm. But uh, yeah, so those are all it's all the stuff that you guys can look forward to from us in the uh, coming weeks. But uh, I think we can just get on to the news, right? Yes, we can. And starting off, as usual, we're doing the New York Times manga bestseller list this week is December 25th through January 1st. Colton, would you like to run down this list? Uh, Yeah, sure. Uh, Starting at number one, uh, we have a new entry on the list, uh, that being Attack on Titan Volume 20. Um, I believe that is a new release of Attack on Titan. Mm -hmm. And uh, at number two, uh, previous rank being number one, we have uh, Tokyo Ghoul Volume 10 on the list, uh, this being its second week on the list. And at number three, previous rank being number two, uh, we have the legendary edition of The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, basically the newest Zelda manga from Akira Himikawa, uh, this being its ninth week on the list. And um, it seems seems like previously on the list, it wasn't number one for once. So it had a pretty good streak of being number one on the list for a while. Yeah, but it's still a strong seller. It's still in the top three. So that is quite impressive. Mm-hmm. And then at number four on the list, previous rank being number three, we have the complete deluxe edition of Tomie from uh, Junji Ito, this being its second week on the list. And then at number five, Let previous me guess. rank. Next, you're going to say Tokyo Ghoul Volume 1's on the list. I Yes, yes. A Tokyo Ghoul <laughs> number one is on the list. Basically, it's 78th week on the list. Tokyo Ghoul's never going to die, guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially since it's also at number six on the list, uh, previous rank being number nine, with Tokyo Ghoul Volume 9, this being its 11th week on the list. Um, and speaking of dying, uh, there's uh, Death Note, the Black Edition Volume 1, essentially the three-in-ones. Uh, at number seven on the list, previous rank being number six, uh, with this being its 11th week on the list also. Let's see, a returning entry to the list uh, being uh, Tokyo Ghoul Volume 2. Uh, ranking number eight on the list, this being its 44th week on the list collectively. Uh, and then uh, One Punch Man Volume 1, ranking number nine, previous rank being number five, uh, this being its 69th week on the list. And then finally, at the bottom, we have Assassination Classroom Volume 1 returning to the list at number 10, uh, this making it its 22nd week on the list collectively. And that's about the end of the list. A dominating showing by Viz Media this week. Everything except for Attack on Titan is a Viz Media title. Of course, most of it is Tokyo Ghoul, taking up 40% of the list with four volumes. I mean, we've, how long can we just keep mentioning just how dominant a title Tokyo Ghoul is on this list? I, I wonder if I read all of it, it'll go away. Probably not, because <laughs> then there's Tokyo Ghoul RE. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Not to mention that with, with their schedule, won't release Volume 14, the last volume of the original Tokyo Ghoul, until August. So you can't read all of it legally right now anyway. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure right after that, they're going to start releasing RE. Yeah. I mean, they already confirmed the yeah, license. Yeah, they, they got the license. So, so. They're going to like release that like right away after yeah. that. Like, there's no reason not to. Dead Note uh, being on this list is surprising. This is, you know... Well, not surprising, because Dead Note is, like, a evergreen title. But 
as a classic title, so to speak. Like, this was an old release. For it to be on the list, like, two weeks in a row, basically. It is a little bit surprising. I think it also speaks that maybe sales during this week weren't necessarily the strongest. If we're seeing, you know, backlog titles uh, pop in on here. Like Death Note number one, Assassination Classroom number one, and of course we get to- a bunch of Tokyo Ghoul. But it's really good to see Tomie doing so well. Of course, it's really interesting to see Zelda manga, you know, continue to do excellently. And of course, an Attack on Titan volume debuting in number one is no surprise either. I would like to see more Junji Ito stuff get on this list. That would be nice. Uzumaki also ranked very well when it came out last year. So Okay. All right, but yeah, then. that's good. So I, they have been doing very well for wins. But uh, we should probably move on to another list. Uh, right Stuff, actually, through their, um, through their Facebook page, came out with their, with their top 10 manga series of 2016. Presumably their top-selling manga from 2016. They know that it's based on the series that you guys and gals were reading the most. So presumably the metric they based that on was sales figures. That's what we're going to assume. Yeah. But uh, we're going to start from the bottom here. At number 10, we have Dead Man Wonderland. I didn't get a chance to mention it on the show, but uh, I probably helped contribute to that a little bit. I I did just buy pretty much like the latter half of Dead Man Wonderland, like literally the day after Christmas. Uh, And then uh, at number nine, we have Food Wars. So that's good. Uh, Number eight would be The Ancient Magus Bride, which I see this series around a lot. So I don't know. It's 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 really interesting. I, I'll, I'll have to like give that a chance at some point because I actually don't know anything about it. Me too. At uh, number seven is, I'm assuming, a favorite of all three of us here, A Silent Voice. It's good to see that selling well. At number six, no surprise, is Tokyo Ghoul. At uh, number five is, and even less of a surprise, One Punch Man. Uh, number four would be uh, Monster Musume. Number three, Dimension W. At number two, ReZero. And at number one would be My Hero Academia. The biggest surprise for me is to- is that Tokyo Girl wasn't number one. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? Although I am surprised that the Dimension W manga is selling as well as it is. Yeah, that- that's surprising to me, too, because I didn't think a lot of people cared about Dimension W. Yeah, the anime had such a mediocre reception. I didn't think the manga had much of a fan base. From what I had heard, I I think I heard somewhere that um, that Dimension W's manga is a lot better than the anime. Yeah, but I- apparently the anime like skips a bunch of stuff and like just like jumps around and then of course has an anime original ending. But that wouldn't surprise me. I'm just still surprised that the manga version is as popular as it is, at least among the right stuff buyers. Hmm. I think it's also no surprise that ReZero is at number two because that was a pretty um, that was a pretty big uh, at least anime title for a while. Yeah, that was one of the biggest titles of 2016. If you looked at the map Crunchyroll made of like what were co- some countries' favorite anime, ReZero is pretty much the dominant anime on that list. Yeah, that, that was kind of insane. ReZero is yeah. just like kind of a global phenomenon. Uh, apparently, yeah. Um, but my hero academia being number one is a really good thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm really glad to see people are buying that, and hopefully, it does even better when season two comes out. I think it will. I think it's just going to continue to blow up. Uh, it's good to see some of these titles doing so well, and uh, I think that 
2017 is going to be another interesting list, and it'll be interesting to see what are the top sellers of 2017. Yeah, it's definitely going to be interesting to take a look at. Well, speaking of jump titles that are successful, or successful titles in general, I guess. So, recently, like in late October, the English Shonen Jump added the Ruby manga adaption drawn by Shiro Miwa of Dog's Fame. And this Ruby manga was supposedly ostensibly a prequel to the series, but really, it's just a re-adaptation of the teaser trailers. And so that's been running in the English Shonen Jump, and Japan is published in Ultra Jump, and uh apparently it's ending this <laughs> month on January 19th with Chapter 14. Oh, uh, boy. So... Really, the series spent nine chapters recapping the teaser trailers, and presumably those final five chapters are a, an original story, but from what I've skimmed of the plot synopsis, it really has no bearing in importance to the act- to the series itself. It's like it's a filler ba- arc. It's basically filler, it's basically fluff. It's, so this manga, even though I'm a Ruby fan, I have to say, this was a really disappointing manga. It was... Kind of pointless to read. I'm very, I, I'm very disappointed in it, and I feel I can't help but feel like this whole project was a waste of time. And I feel bad for people who were introduced to the series through the manga because it really did not give them enough to get engaged and invested in the characters and world. So that's unfortunate. It's really sad because I remember you were really excited to read this. I mean, I'd just gotten into it, like, I understood the series, I became a fan of it. So, yeah, at the time, I was like, oh, this manga adaption is going to tell an original story. That sounds really interesting. I want to learn more about the world and these characters. At this manga, reading it in Jump these past eight or so weeks, it has just not offered anything worthwhile. The closest it came to doing that was during the re-adaptation of Weiss's Caesar trailer, which did touch upon some of her backstory and character motivations, but nothing that the show itself doesn't already explore much better. So, yeah, yeah, this manga is just kind of a waste, and it's unfortunate. I mean, like, the whole big problem with this, I feel, is that it's adapting mainly the trailers. And the whole purpose of the trailers, like, when they're animated and stuff, was that they're just showing off the animation and the fight scenes. There are plot little snippets of plot in there, but there's not enough to really flesh it out and, like, adapt it in manga form. So I I feel like Shiro Miwa should have, like, actually just started with the original story from the beginning and not even bothered with the trailers at all. Yeah, I wish they didn't spend most of this manga's run. Recapping stories, for one thing, that weren't interesting, that were originally intended just to sell you on the series' action, that the manga cannot do, cannot communicate in its medium, as the trailers, original trailers did. It could could also be very possible that maybe the way the story turned out wasn't completely by Miwa's choice alone. There, There could have been some corporate meddling here, or she... He or she, I don't know which, could could have been just drawing what Rooster Teeth wanted him to draw. I mean, the series was supervised by Rooster Teeth, so they did have to approve, and I'm sure they gave him direction and stuff. So yeah. I, I'm not necessarily blaming Miwa himself, but I do think that whoever like envisioned or wanted to 
whatever they wanted to attempt to do with this manga, I don't think they'd have succeeded at all. I think that there could have been so much more done with a Ruby manga than what they did do. Yeah, that's a that's unfortunate because from from the little I had read of it, it looked really great. Like I, I could I could have just spent hours looking at the art, honestly. Miwa's art is fantastic. Yeah. It's just that the writing just wasn't there. Yeah, and that, that's mainly due to the fact that the earliest parts of Ruby really aren't that good. Yeah, they so are. Adapting that into manga form is just not really a good idea. And especially when you're adapting the teaser trailers, which didn't have much plot to begin with. Again, they were just action set pieces yeah, and like, showcases. Those are pretty those trailers are usually completely silent, aside from Yang's, I think. Yeah, Yang's is the only one that has substantial dialogue. Yeah, and even that's just like her just making off comments. Yeah. And you know, just just to kind of go off topic a little bit real quick before we head on to the next news story and continue talking about Ruby. Uh, this also kind of presents another problem, you know, that problem where Viz's weekly Shonen Jump introduces a new series and is basically gone in, within like the next two months. Yeah, this, at the rate that they've been publishing Ruby with one chapter a week, they'll be done with the Ruby manga by mid-February. So yeah. that's another series they're going to need to replace. Yeah, I just I've. I feel really sorry for the Viz jump. I really wish it, it just seems like they can't get a break, honestly. Yeah. yeah, I do I hope they choose replacements that will stick around for a while. Like I think that the strategy of choosing the jump starts just as easy replacements isn't sustainable because it's such a lottery as to what will, you know, stick around and what won't. And it's just not reliable. I think they should invest in bringing over some of the series that have consistent and, you know, assured serialization for the long term. So pretty much Kimetsu no Yaiba. And Haikyuu. I mean, that one especially is, like, guaranteed to last for a while. I feel like they're not gonna... I, I know I know a lot of people who are really really like gunning for Haikyuu to join the Viz jump, but I don't I feel like if they haven't added it at this point, they're probably not going to. But I could I could I could totally be proven wrong though. Yeah, I remember when I was listening to the Shonen Jump podcast like a few months back, they answered a question asking like why they haven't like added the Haikyuu manga to jump. They kinda just brush it off really. It kinda seems like they just aren't interested in really adding it. And maybe that's due to the fact that they're already spending so much time releasing it monthly that translating more on top of that is kind of overkill. That's actually kind of understandable. Especially since, that. like, the translations that they use for the magazine chapters, they have to completely redo them for the volume release. So it's not like it's, like, going to make it easier down the line when they get to those points in the volume releases. It just creates more work. So I wonder if maybe they'll add IQ, uh, IQ, uh, IQ to, um, to the Viz jump maybe once they're caught up, but still even, even with that, at, at, at the rate they're releasing IQ, I mean, they're releasing a volume every month, but it's still going to take them some time to get caught up. Yeah. It's going to be like two years, I think. Yeah. So I, I don't know. We'll see what they decide to do, but I am hoping for some announcements of replacement series soon. Yeah. This is the part of the reason I started reading, um, if, if, pe if people follow me on Twitter, you'll notice I've been, uh, reading Black Clover lately. And, like, this is, this is part of the reason I've been 
I've been uh, I decided to start reading stuff like Black Clover and, and Food Wars because with all these series that are ending in Jump, like they they have I mean they they have a, they have a bunch of series for the lineup, but like the problem is only half of them run weekly, and the other half run pretty much monthly or or irregularly. And me personally, I only read about uh, let's see, I read One Piece, My Hero Academia, Promised Neverland. Uh, I know there's another one I read. I think One Punch Man. So I, I definitely read at least like four series out of like what the ten that they have. Even less than that now. Oh, that's bad. Yeah. So it's part of the reason I started reading those is because I want new stuff to read weekly. But I mean, like, I I wish, I really wish they would add at least maybe like one or two new like weekly series that would be nice three weekly series ended in november so i think that they should add three new weekly series to cover those gaps but we'll see what they do yeah i mean just some sort of content at least fill it because right now the magazine just feels so bare like it's not that the content within it's bad like it's really good chapters of really good series but compared to what we had like end of last year and now it's just so like drastic of a difference in terms of the volume of content yeah i i still say they should run more one shots that's kind of what i want to see from them i mean i'm i'm sure it's not something they would do too often but it's i think it's you know it it would add a little spice to the to the lineup every once in a while it'd be something new it'd be something you know surprising and unexpected yeah, like they yeah, haven't run be great, a but in a while. it's at the same time it's no replacement for a regularly serialized series. Yeah, but that I I agree, but I still think it would be more content, and that would be good. <laughs> Though I think it's pretty safe to assume at this point that they're probably they're they're at least going to be running that new arc of Kenshin that's going to be running pretty soon. Yeah, that's yeah. assured. So I think that we can expect that. What I don't know if we can expect is the ruby red like roses manga anthology that's going to be coming out in spring yes as one ruby manga ends a new ruby manga will begin this was announced very recently that this manga anthology uh, based on ruby is coming out in the spring i don't know there's no information on which authors are contributing to this but given the partnership between Viz and Rooster Teeth, I wouldn't be surprised if they pick this up and if we maybe see some of the anthology chapters in this at least previewed in the Viz Jump. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. And I hope that this anthology is more interesting than uh, the Ruby manga that we ha- we got recently. So mm-hmm. we'll see. Well, at least more Ruby content's coming, it looks like. Yeah. Another thing I'm interested in is uh, the writer of Psychopaths, Makoto Fukami, is launching a new manga. He's writing a new manga uh, that's going to be debuting in Ichijinja's Comics Rex. You already debuted at the time of this recording, and it's about a 17-year-old boy named Geki Tetsu Amo who doesn't stand out, but under the excuse of eliminating harmful elements from the world, decides to commit mass murder. This sounds a lot like Death Note, but it also <laughs> ties into teams that were explored in Psycho Pass. 
So it is kind of interesting, and I have to wonder how Fukami will approach this series. Because he did very excellent writing on Psychopaths. He was, he wrote the scripts for the series and the movie. He had no involvement for Psychopaths 2, which is probably why it sucked so bad. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would be, I really enjoyed Psychopaths, so I would be interested in checking out uh, this manga if it ever got licensed over here. I, I would give this a try. Um, and, and to your point, Sid, yeah, sure. It, this does kind of sound like Death Note, but it looks like it looks like instead of writing people's names in notebooks, he's going to actually go around and shooting people, which yeah. sounds a lot cooler <laughs> to me. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see that kind of character. Not that I condone mass murder. That sounded really bad. Well, in a work of fiction, <laughs> it can be fun to see that kind of thing. Yes, f- violence in fiction is good. Violence in real life is bad. Don't Don't do violence in real life. Yes, but also speaking of manga adaptations <laughs> ending, just like the Ruby manga ending, we're seeing another adaptation ending, and that's the Fate Zero manga adaptation. That's ending with the 14th volume, in which will ship out later in 2017. That's based on the uh, Fate Zero-like novel and anime. Uh, so for people who's, who are picking those up, no doubt, like hardcore Typhoon fans, uh, definitely worth noting that. And yeah, you can look forward to seeing the conclusion in manga form. I, I really, I really will have to give Fate Zero a chance because I, I, I see a lot of people who are really into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Fate Zero is really good. Yeah, it's still one of my favorite anime. Yeah. But it seems like the Fate Zero manga is not the only manga. That looks to be ending in 2017. Colton, would you like to talk about another manga that seems to be ending soon? Yeah, another manga that's ending, which I was kind of surprised to hear was ending, especially since this like just got picked up last year. Um, but I mean, now that it's ending, I I kind of have more interest in reading it now that I know it's ending soon. Uh, so it looks like the sixth issue of Shogaku Khan's Big Comic Spirits uh announced that uh Kengo Hanazawa's I am a hero zombie horror manga uh will be resuming in the seventh issue on January sixteenth after going apparently on a brief hiatus uh this past November and that the manga will end in seven chapters. Hmm, it's very interesting, but it's been running for a long time since two thousand nine. So it's mm, okay. Eight year run, that's pretty good, and I can imagine it might be about time to end it. I am interested in reading I Am a Hero. I bought the first Omnibus volume like when it came out, but I just haven't had a chance to dig into it. But it's always been highly recommended, and many have praised it as one of the best zombie manga that there is. So it's definitely like great that the series has reached a conclusion, and I'm sure you know that'll also be a relief to uh, the publisher. I forget who's publishing I'm a Hero. I think it's I think it's uh, not not Dark Horse or is it Dark Horse? But either way, I'm sure it's very reassuring that the the series has an end date and they won't have to worry about it having to publish it forever and ever. Uh, yeah, but um, I I I feel like this is now. This is just me coming up with ideas on the podcast again. But I I feel like maybe around the time it ends, we should we should finally preview the first volume of I Am a Hero and talk about it on the show. Sure, I'd be up for that. Because you, you said you said you haven't read it, right, Sid? I haven't read it, no. Okay. And also not to give too much away, but I think I think that was a suggestion actually in um 
that was a suggestion from our poll that we should read more series that neither of us have read and maybe discuss them. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good idea. Which is something we, we did do with Ajin. Mm-hmm. But I, I think maybe we could do more of that uh, hopefully later this year. Yeah, I definitely think that's something we should do more with, with the show this year. And I'm a hero. It seems like a great candidate for that. And just to clarify, Dark Horse Comics is releasing the manga. Uh, I thought so. Yeah, I thought so too, but I wasn't sure. Even though things end, sometimes sometimes it's not the end of the story. Sometimes authors will revisit their work, and they'll add in more details that they had previously left off. Now, Oki Urasawa is doing that very thing with 21st Century Boys. In the republished complete edition of 21st Century Boys, he is adding a new ending specifically created for this edition. That's very interesting to me, because uh, I can't imagine what this new ending will entail. But, yeah, there is more to the ending of 21st Century Boys than we had previously seen, and that is an intriguing thought. And I hope that this complete edition of 21st Century Boys, and of course, omnibus editions of 20th Century Boys, get released by Viz pretty soon now that they're done releasing the monster omnibuses. So explain something to me real quick. So there's 20th Century Boys and the 21st Century Boys. So I know 20th Century Boys is the original series. So is 21st Century Boys kind of like an epilogue to 20th Century Boys? Or how how does all that work? Yeah, 21st Century Boys is basically just an epilogue to 20th Century Boys. Uh, Okay. The title change is just significant because the main, like, antagonist of 20th Century Boys was defeated. So, you know, that... And then, so the, that marked the changing of era or whatever, and so that's why the, the epilogue is called 21st Century Boys. But really, it's like all the same manga, kind of. Okay. Like, it's interesting. Like, the 21st Century Boys is like the ending of the series, so you should read that after you finish 20th Century Boys. So Urasawa didn't, like, take a break between 20th Century no, and 21st? No, it, it was pretty much published, like, back simultaneously. There was no mm-hmm. break. Okay. So is 20th century or 21st century boys, as you say, is that like, that's all, is that all like, like a volume long or something? I, it's I can't two imagine. Volumes it's long. It's not very Okay. Long. And so do, do you think the original ending for 21st century boys ended the series? Well, do you think this is something that the manga needs or like, how necessary do you think this is as someone who's read the series uh, yourself? I don't know what this new ending is. Like, I don't know what it entails, so it's hard for me to say. Like, I didn't, like, I thought, like, 21st Century Boys ended things well enough. It gave us all the answers pretty much as to the things that were going on in 20th Century Boys. So, like, it was fine. Like, I I didn't really see the need for anything to be further explained. But at the same time, it's not like there couldn't be more things I'm just not thinking about. Or, or so I couldn't do something that, like adds a new meaning and profundity to the events of the series. So it's a very much wait and actually read it before I can judge it kind of thing. So, okay, so I I was wondering if this was the kind of thing where, like, oh, hey, Kogios ended off really well, and everybody apparently, well, not everybody, but I know a lot of people like the ending to that, and I know there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of people out there who do not want another season of Kogios because they think it ended all, it ended perfectly already. So I, I was wondering maybe that if that was the kind of thing or not. Again, the only thing we know about this new ending is that it's a new ending. 
we don't know what it is. So it's not nothing to get like an uproar over like Lelouch was the car driver all along <laughs> or anything like that. So yeah. I mean, like for all we know, it could just be like the change in ending to like the Dragon Ball uh Kazenban releases where they just add in like Goku giving his Nimbus to Oob. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Which I I really do I really do like that version of the ending, by the way. But yeah. I need I need I need to get on 20th Century Boys hopefully in the next year or so. Yeah, it's a great series. Now to go in a completely different direction and just to talk about something a little fun, the University of South Carolina is now offering a class called Reading and Writing about Magical Girls as an English 101 course. So as a, an English elective, you can basically take a class about learning about the, um, the magical girls, and specifically in the context of feminist theory. But it's a really interesting concept for class that, I mean, I'd certainly love to take that, you know, as an elective. Uh, that'd be a great way to, that'd be a fun way to fill out a humanities requirement. So yeah, I mean, more classes like this, please, in more universities. <laughs> So yeah, an interesting little fun thing that just recently became a thing. <laughs> uh, honestly, I I would probably take this class too. It, it actually does sound like fun. Indeed. Now to celebrate the accomplishments of a classic manga author, Moto Hagio, who is renowned uh, as publishing many great shoujo works like Day War Eleven, A Drunken Dream, AA, and Heart of Thomas has won the Asahi Prize uh, for 2016. Uh, the prize was established in 1929 to honor distinguished individuals and groups in the academics, arts, and other fields that have contributed to Japanese culture and society. And the Asahi Shimbun Foundation chose Hakio because of her innovative approach to drawing manga for young girls. So, really interesting uh, and great... Uh, honor bestowed on this classic mangaka here. I definitely mean to check out more of Hagia's works because she is well-renowned as uh, one of the best. Mm, yeah, as someone who doesn't read a lot of shoujo manga himself, I, I'd, I'd be kind of interested in reading some of her works too, actually. And finally, to top things off here, a bit of industry news. Wiz Media has invested in the upcoming anime recommendation community platform Kitsu. Uh, this platform was launched or originally as Hummingbird in 2013. It's been recently renamed. And it basically allows users to track and rate anime and manga they've seen and provides recommendations based on user preferences. Basically, it's kind of like MAL. And Viz Media's chief marketing officer, Brad Woods, is joining the Kitsu board of directors. And also, Viz Media's vice president of business development, Raw Pereda, who led the deal, is serving as senior advisor. So they are investing uh, big into this uh, site. And that's going to be kind of interesting. It's kind of in I have to wonder what Viz intends to use Kitsu for and what they hope to gain out of this partnership. So, yeah, an interesting little development here. Yeah, it will be see. It will be interesting to see what comes out of it. Though, in all likelihood, I'm probably just going to be lazy and stick to MAL. <laughs> yeah, same. Because 
I already have like hundreds and hundreds of entries on there. It'd just be a pain to transfer all that over. Pro- probably same for the people who use stuff like um, what's it called? I know a lot of people who don't really care for MAL because they use stuff like Anime Planet. I think it's called. Yeah, Anime Planet. That's another big one people use. Uh, but it's still be it's it's still going to be interesting to see what actually comes out of this. It's just it, it's a very interesting choice for Viz to or invest in something like this. But with that, we are done with the news, and now my heart resonates with heat enough to burn. My blood is razor sharp. Yes, it is time for some JoJo's Bizarre Adventure discussion. Woo-hoo! I knew you were going to take out the JoJo quotes. Yes, I would. He's he's been waiting for him. He's been waiting for him. Uh, so where do we start from here? Well, let's go over some of the history of JoJo's. Like, where did Mihiro Goyaki begin his career, and what were some of the things that he did before starting JoJo's? Relord, you have read some of Araki's previous works. Would you like to detail your thoughts on them and? Your perceptions of Araki as a creator in his early days. Well, the only, like, one of his early works that I've actually fully read is Bao. Yeah, I've read it too. <laughs> yeah, so I, I feel Bao is very much, it's very Araki in the way that it's kind of is, like, the embodiment of, like, super gore, all this blood and, like, this very, like, action type of thing. And, of course, there's animal abuse and all that stuff. I'd say for a very early work of his, it's fun, but there's, like, very little depth in terms of story. Yeah, I I remember reading Bao a little while ago, too, and thinking that, yeah, this is pretty Iraqi, but, you know, unless you're you're kind of already into Iraqi's work and you enjoy his tropes, I don't feel like it has much else to offer besides that. It doesn't have much to offer more than just being a retrospective. Yeah, like, I'm honestly not surprised that... Bao bombed for Viz in the US. Because, like, unless you're familiar with what type of author Rocky is, you're not going to enjoy Bao. I've I've heard better things about his other stuff, like Gorgeous Irene and BT. Yeah. But, like, Bao was a... It was his longest Shonen Jump manga before JoJo. So, I'd say based on that, it's, like, not a very good first impression of what he's capable of. Like, reading this and both uh, Phantom Blood in manga form, like, I, I, I thought Phantom Blood was a very, like, 60s American comic book kind of thing, but Bow, Bow's like that even mu- even more so. Like, I, I, I felt like I was reading a 60s superhero comic with all of, like, the narration and everybody announcing what they're going to do before they do it, and it's just, it's, it's, it's really hokey, but not in a very, like, endearing way, like with JoJo, I don't feel like. Yeah. All right. I want to get your guys' thoughts on Araki's early works because I personally have only read JoJo's. I couldn't really speak to them. But just to detail some of Araki's influences as he was starting out, like he was, of course, an avid reader of manga as a child. He has been on record saying that uh, Ikikaji Wara's Eye to Makoto uh, was one of the most important manga to him growing up. Uh, that being Kajiwara's, you know, famous romance title. Uh, he also had, of course, a great fascination with art. He was heavily influenced by the work of Paul Gogni in particular. 
And uh, his love of art and manga, of course, led him to become a manga creator. And he submitted the, his first work to publishers uh, starting in high school. Eventually, he he submitted to Shuisha. And while he was highly criticized, he eventually was encouraged to submit to the Tesco Awards. And eventually, his one-shot poker under arms uh, won the 1980 Tesco Award. Well, not won. It was... It was uh, made a selected work, so basically an honorable mention. But after that, he was able to get start the serializing Shonen Jump. And so he had a few serializations before Bao, actually. Uh, his first serialization was called, it was a short-lived series called Cool Shock BT. Bao, of course, which came out in 1984, is his most popular, like, work before JoJo. Uh, mainly because it got an anime adaption. It was released overseas in the U.S. But yeah, it also didn't last long. It's only two volumes. only lasted nine chapters. It wasn't successful. Gorgeous Irene, which he debuted in 1985, is also was very short-lived. But it's significant in that that's the series where Rocky really developed, you know, his signature style of buff, muscular, and flamboyant characters. So... Dan Araki was given his chance in late 1986, uh, the first issue of the 1987 year, uh, run of Shonen Jump to debut a new series. And, you know, Araki during this whole time has been doing a bit of soul searching as he admitted in interviews. He really didn't know what kind of manga artist he wanted to be. And so he looked at other Shonen Jump manga, and he pondered the style and subjects he wanted to draw, and he felt that with JoJo, he could finally feel like a real pro uh, with the series. And so the inspiration for JoJo came from a couple things. Mainly, he liked action movies with big, muscly men like Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And while watching those movies, he often thought to himself... Who is the strongest in the world? And that idea of who is the strongest in the world was the foundation behind JoJo. Uh, with that, he entwined themes of immortality and justice because he wanted to include things that humans innately seek. And basically, he wanted his manga to be about immortality and muscly guys wanting to get stronger. In addition, he was influenced by a trip to Italy he had made two years prior, where he had fallen in love with Italian art because, in his opinion, they strove for the ideal human beauty, and he wanted to strive for that strange ideal with his art. Uh, as has often been mentioned, the name Jojo came from the restaurant that he met with his editor, Jonathan's. That is where Jonathan Joestar's name came from. Uh, the Joestar came from the fact that he liked a literal names like Sylvester Stallone. So he came up with, uh, uh, wanted to come up with a last name that became a J. And after he came up with jo- Joestar, he realized he could shorten it to Jojo, and that sounded very appealing to him. Uh, Jonathan, as a, as a main character, was very atypical at the time because, of course, he's a foreigner, foreigner, he's a Brit. And interestingly, it was very taboo at the time for a jump protagonist to be a foreigner. Huh, interesting. But eventually, uh, Araki was able to convince his editor to give him the go-ahead to do that. Uh, 
As for Dio, Dio was, of course, inspired by the idea of making a counterpart to Jonathan, where Jonathan represented the good of humanity, Dio was represent the evil of humanity. So there'd be a black and white dichotomy, a yin-yang dynamic between them. Because of the idea for Dio was that he wanted to become a godly figure, that he strove to godhood, he gave him, he dubbed him the name Dio uh, from the Italian word Dio, which refers to God, but of course also to, I believe the name is Ronnie James Dio, uh, yep. the heavy metal band. Yep. Uh, he has great music. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a double meaning to Dio's name. It's also worth mentioning that the Brando in Dio Brando comes from uh, Marlon uh, Marlon Brando, I believe. Yeah, Marlon Brando. Yeah, again, Iraqi is a big fan of classic movies. And other inspirations for JoJo's is that he liked stories that chronicled generations. Like, he was a big fan of the TV series Roots and how that tracked. Uh, the ge- uh, generations of people appeal to him. So he wanted to make a story where he depicted a conflict that lasted through several generations. And he was also very much inspired by the manga Babel 2 by Yokoyama Misuteru, whose fights uh, were f- notable for having rules to them. And he liked the idea of having rules to his fights. So he wanted the fights in JoJo's to also have rules. And he made the ripple as a power... That could be easy to make rules with. And also he named it Ripple because jo- the jo- word Jojo in Japanese means Ripple. So it's kind of a pun. Huh, interesting. I didn't know that. So that all served as the foundation for part one of Jojo's Phantom Blood. Now, I think let's backtrack a little bit here and detail how each of us got into Jojo's and then what we taught about Phantom Blood. Um, actually, can I, I also want to bring up something real quick that, um, I think Araki mentions in, uh, in, uh, in the, uh, in one of the hardcover JoJo volumes that I thought was really interesting about, uh, William A. Zeppeli in particular. Um, I think he mentions in one of the, uh, in one of the Jojonium volumes that at the time it was very tab, that it was also a very kind of taboo to have, to have a character with a mustache. Yes. Yeah, I remember seeing that. I thought that was kind of an interesting tidbit. It's like it's like it's really interesting to learn what was what was like taboo to to like have in Jump, you know, a magazine where you can where you, where you can you can have like all this really gory violence and like fully exposed women's breasts, but but you know stuff like no mustaches, no no, no mustaches yeah. or foreigners. That's that's too much, guys. I think one of the things that made JoJo so interesting to readers was how Araki challenged the rules and limitations that had been imposed uh, on mangaka at in who were working for Jump at the time. Uh, he, throughout the run of JoJo's, he would challenge like what could be done in a Shonen Jump manga. Killing off Jonathan in Phantom Blood, that was a huge deal because... Killing off a main character of a jump manga in the 80s was considered taboo. Huh. So Araki really had to fight to be able to do that. And he ultimately was able to convince like his editors and the higher-ups to give him the go-ahead to do that. With the caveat that the next protagonist, Joseph, looked similar enough to Jonathan. So readers wouldn't find it jarring. Yeah. Which in retrospect, I remember in... 
to Jejoniums in the when he's talking about uh, Joseph's character about he re- really regrets doing that because he feels that it kind of took out some of the individuality between like distinguishing between Jonathan and Joseph, which is why Joseph had such a drastically different personality to Jonathan because they wouldn't let him change the character design. Mm-hmm. That is really interesting to think about. Um, but I guess, um, I guess I don't know. Uh, v Lord, you could talk about how you got into JoJo through Phantom Blood if you want. Yeah, so I got into JoJo around like end of 2012, right around the time the anime was coming out. But instead of watching the anime, because the anime was on license time, I was kind of too lazy to actually go and look it up illegally. But for some reason, I was fine with reading manga scans, which <laughs> I'm. Yeah, I, I had very weird morals when it came to legality of anime and manga at the time. But anyways, I decided to just go ahead and read the JoJo manga. And one thing that really stood out to me right away about Phantom Blood in particular was how different it is as an introductory story compared to other battle shonen. Like, you, it takes about ten chapters for us to really kind of just get into knowing this the feud between uh, Jonathan and Dio like for the first 10 chapters you can't really even tell it's going to be about vampires so much and it's more about a fight over inheritance it basically looks like uh what's the name of that show uh i i never know how to pronounce it is it Downton Abbey or Downtown Abbey Downton Abbey Downton Abbey it looks like Downton Abbey the show uh, the shonen manga <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, uh, for for me, it's like I, I before I started, I had read like the Wikipedia articles about it and where it goes and all that stuff, and I was like, "This becomes about vampires or the vampires." <laughs> I was promised vampires, but at uh. the same time, it was really interesting because it it subversed my like expectations for what I should perceive from a battle shonen, and even beyond that, like. As it progresses, of course, Jonathan does die. and Which, I mean, think about it. How many battle shonen nowadays, really, does the main character die so early on? Within the first year of publication. I really can't think of really any shonen manga, at least that I've read, that really does that kind of thing at all, honestly. At least not without having the character be revived or come back. <laughs> Attack on Titan. <laughs> eh, yeah, there's that. Um... But I, yeah, yeah. No, you can go ahead. No, you go ahead, Colton. Well, I was just gonna say if you were if you were done, View Lord, I guess I could talk about uh, I guess how I got into Phantom Blood. I I will say for the record that unfortunately I've watched more JoJo than I've read it, but you know I I th- I think that's just because I like I do want to I do want to read JoJo at some point. Like I've I've at least read Phantom Blood. But I think that's just because I also love Phantom Blood a lot, and I'll talk about why in just a second. But I, as somebody who only watches the anime, I I really like watching JoJo week to week. I think is like one of the most, it's one of the most perfect like serialized, televised anything I've ever watched. Like it's it's so enjoyable to watch week to week. It always it always wants me leaving more. And like something I like about JoJo's in general is that. It's very rare that I'm bored by JoJo's. Like, you know, there sometimes like with uh like like with Phantom Blood, as much as I love Phantom Blood, Phantom Blood does definitely kind of drag in the middle a little bit, especially with uh the fight against um uh 
was it Bluford and uh, Tarkus? Yeah, I feel I feel like it's kind of where it drags the most. Uh, I think it's where it kind of suffers a little bit. But even even so, I'm I'm still always entertained by it. So there's that. But um, if if we're just talking about Phantom Blood specifically, I <clears throat> my my first exposure to JoJo was through the anime. You know, I, I will admit I I did watch pretty much all of the equivalent of season one of JoJo illegally before Crunchyroll picked it up. I don't think I was using Crunchyroll too much back then. But then I th- I think afterwards, when I had no more of the anime to watch, I did try to read the manga, and I got through all of Phantom Blood, and I just never really got the chance to like go back to it. So I've so I've pretty much never read past part one, but I do want to. I've I've basically I've basically am caught up with the anime though, so I know enough about it. But yeah, with Phantom Blood, um, I guess we could just kind of jump off into a, a slight Phantom Blood discussion here. I. I kind of talked about it in uh, in the manga fight a little bit that you guys are going to be hearing in the next uh, couple of weeks or so. But uh, and I know people are really going to not like this opinion, but I really do think that Phantom Blood is legitimately still my favorite part of JoJo, and I want to explain why because I know nobody in the entire universe <laughs> is going to agree with me because apparently there are people who really don't like Phantom Blood, and I can't say I really blame them because. I feel like the good in Phantom Blood for me personally outweighs the bad because Phantom Blood really isn't like bad, but I, I recognize that it's not perfect either. Like I said, it, it does drag in places and, and, um, like I mentioned earlier, it is very, it's very much like a, because a, a lot of basically parts one and two of JoJo are like reading a 60s superhero comic book. Where basically, while while all the characters are like doing stuff and fighting, they always have to explain what they're going to do while they do it. Like like if I said something like, "Well, I am going to kick you in the head, and and then you are going to drop to the floor, and when you drop to the floor, I am going to body slam you," or something like that. Just very descriptive all throughout, especially the first two parts, which to me I don't think is very appealing writing. Um, but you know, all the same, I still love part one, mostly for the, um, mostly for the rivalry of Jonathan and Dio, because as as much as I admit part one isn't perfect, I still think basically the rivalry between the two of them really are, I mean, obviously they're the driving force of the entire story, but I think it's gripping enough to like, it's, it was gripping enough to keep me interested and to keep me watching week to week. I really wanted to see how it played out and i think it plays out very well and you know i a problem that i have with jojo overall is that i feel like a lot of the characters suffer from underdevelopment depending on which part you want to talk about and that's sort of an issue with part one too but so so like the supporting cast of part one isn't like super memorable Except Dire and Straits, because I do like the band Dire Straits. That's the only reason I like those characters. Except, except, well, I like I like Dire and Straits because of that. And I also like Dire because he died like a moron. <laughs> my my favorite my favorite part of part one is legitimately where Dire is like, I'm gonna I'm gonna attack Dio, and Jonathan's like, dude, he has freezing powers. He's gonna kill you, and he's like, no, nah, man, I got it. Oops, I died. Whatever. I mean, he at least like poked out his eye. Yeah, that was that was a lot cooler than it should have been. Um, but no, I I I don't know. I've, I I will also admit that like 
I probably love part one so much also because of nostalgia and just because like I like remembering the time the like the period of time where I did get to watch that week to week and how much fun I really did have watching it week to week. Um, it's just I don't know. I think part one's good, but I understand why some people might not agree, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I do think part one is rather underrated. Uh, it does drag in the middle a bit, I think, with the Tarkis and Buford fight. But overall, I think that there is a lot to really like about it. I think that the beginning, in particular, is really strong. Yes. Uh, those first three episodes. and the, I think that the conflict between Jonathan and Dio is very, like really tight and like really engaging and that carries you through that entire first uh, part and it is a whole lot of fun I still think even though it's not quite as crazy as the later parts there is still a lot of absurdity and a lot of fun to be had in it with the fight with Jack the Ripper even with the Tarks and Buford battle it goes to some crazy places and you know of course Dyer sacrificing himself and the final <laughs> fight between uh, Jonathan and Dio and even the first fight between Jonathan and Dio those are all really memorable moments yeah also, another stupid thing I love about part one is um, there's there's this moment where, like, you have a bunch of zombies that are attacking straights, and they all, like, uh, announce their names. And I, I think they're all named after, like, ba the band members of, like, Led Zeppelin, I believe. Yeah, I think so. And, and then they get taken out right away. Like, that's such a useless <laughs> moment. Yeah. I, th I think that's also another reason why I like part one is because of all those useless moments. I legitimately <laughs> love every single one of them. So maybe I just have maybe I just have weird tastes. That's probably why I like part one. I don't know, but that's just me personally. But yeah, I I mean, like part one, I'll admit, part one is my least favorite part in all of JoJo. That's fair. But I can't hate it. It's not bad. It's still good in my opinion. And I, it doesn't change the fact that I got I was still so engaged with the series in part one that it made me want to read more. Uh huh. So I I can't really even though like. The other parts of JoJo after it, I feel, are leagues better. Oh, yeah. I can't really hate part one by any means, because it still got me into the series, and still got me invested in the story of JoJo. So, to detail my experience with JoJo, I got into it because, you know, We Lord started reading and watching it, and he was, like, really into it. He'd been tell he told me crazy things, like how, you know, Dio forced a mother to I turned a mother into a vampire and then she ate her own child and I was like, Whoa, that's crazy. What the hell? As horrible as that is, it's still a great moment for Dio. Yeah, it is one of the most memorable like Dio villainy moments and one of the most memorable moments of Phantom Blood. Yeah. So I eventually did get around to w watching the anime, and I was hooked by those first three episodes. I did find conflict between Jonathan. You're really engaging, definitely. Though the Targus and Bruford fight that was got was a little slow for me. And honestly, I stopped watching the series during the middle of Phantom Blood, and I didn't pick it up for another couple months. And when I did, I just didn't feel like going back into part one, so I skipped ahead to part two and continued watching from there. And only like afterwards like after i got like really into part two i decided to go back and finish part one so for briefly there i kind of i kind of skipped around 
until I felt it moved to finish part one again. But, you know, going back and having rewatched and reread it, I think part one really is pretty solid in its own right. It's maybe not one of the best parts, just because it's so short and because even because of, even though it's so short, it does feel like it's dragging at times. But I do think that the rivalry between Jonathan and Hia, which it defines the rest of the series, the conflicts between the Joe Stars and Dio is something that pervades the rest of the series all the way until the end of part six. I think that dynamic is just so strong. I think that the fights between Jonathan and Dio are some of the most memorable and can, are worthy to rank among the best in the series, especially the first fight they have in the mansion. And I do like a lot of the supporting characters. Well, mainly, I like Zeppeli. I like his story and sacrifice. And Speedwagon is, of course, a lot of fun. And you got, you get a lot of great funny moments out of him. Like, even Speedwagon is afraid. Actually, I also, I also want to highlight something I always forget about part one that I really like. You know, uh, P- Poco, the little kid that they rescue, he's not exactly, you know, the, the most interesting character in part one, but I really, I really like his moment in part one where he helps, uh, he helps Zeppeli and, uh, Speedwagon get into, uh, the dungeon that Bruford has taken Jonathan hostage in. That I've, I've always thought, you know, as, again, as, as uninteresting as Poka really is overall as a character, I still thought that moment for him, that, that tiny little character arc with him basically, uh, thinking back on when he was bullied by a bunch of kids and his sister confronts him with, with actual physical pain and says, you know, this is, now that you experience pain, basically, you know, you, what, what are you going to do about it? And I've always thought like as simple and short as that moment is, I've always thought that was a pretty good moment actually for the character. Yeah, I thought that was a really cool moment too. And, Every JoJo's part basically has a child psychic character that ends up helping the JoJo of the part in some way, or at least, you know, befriends them. And Poco is definitely, you know, he ha- he has his role to play. He isn't useless. He isn't just an annoying tag-along. And he has his own little character arc that does resolve in a satisfying way when he risks his life to say, to help, you know, infiltrate the dungeon Jonathan is trapped with Bruford in and, you know, get, help get the door open so Seppley and Speedwagon can come to Jonathan's aid. I, I thought that was a great moment, a great sequence that in Phantom Blood that I think is underappreciated, but it is, it's pretty entertaining. Poco isn't among one of the better uh, of the child psychics, but he, he does have a good story to him. And it is a little disappointing that we don't see him referenced or appear again in like battle tendency. Yeah. I, I was kind of was felt sad that Poker never really showed up again. This, he, he, he was a decent child character. He wasn't like annoying or anything. He was fine. I mean, yeah. At least he was minorly referenced slash reincarnated in part seven as Poco Loco. Oh, no, wow, that does seriously? Not count. That does not count. <laughs> that does not count. Um, at all. I definitely think one of the strongest parts of part one is uh, that it starts off like so unassuming as this kind of Victorian slice of life story, and then it becomes a dark gothic fantasy. 
it it has a very different feel from the rest of the parts. It still has that hot blooded adrenaline that JoJo's is known for. It but it's not quite as ridiculous, even though it is uh, over the top, over the top and insane. But it it ha- it's a mu- it has a much darker feel. It has a much more serious feel, at least uh, compared to other parts until maybe part six and part seven for sure. Uh, but yeah, it's a very interesting stand-up part. I think it's a good beginning to the series too, because you know you get introduced to the main conflict of the saga of JoJo's, the conflict between the Joe stars and Dio. And, you know, other recurring elements that will pervade the remainder of the series. And I think, like, it's a strong enough introduction. Definitely in retrospect, and if, or, or if you try to read or watch the part after getting the JoJo's through another part of the story, it doesn't, might not appeal or hold up as well. But as an entryway into JoJo's and as a starting point, I think it's a very strong one. I think it does its job really well. And of course, you know, it's not perfect. Jonathan is, I think I, I like Jonathan as a character, but definitely compared to other JoJo's, he doesn't, he's a little, as Araki himself admits, Jonathan is, kind of a goody two-shoes. He's kind of a, too much of a good boy. And even Araki has mentioned before in interviews that if he were to redo Jonathan's character, he would like make him have more flaws and uh, make him, you know, show kind of the ripples, part of the pun, in his personality. So Johnny Joestar? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, but the big, I think Dio, in particular, though, is just such a strong enough villain that he will carry that part for most readers and uh, viewers of the anime. He certainly did for me, and I think that a lot of people will say the same. And, of course, since most people know that Dio returns just through cultural osmosis in Parts 3, I think that anticipation of seeing him when he'll show up again, and also just seeing his origins is very interesting as well. Yeah, like, I know people who don't really like part one, but they go for it just for Dio, because yeah. they love Dio so much. Yeah, literally without Dio, part one would not be good at all. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's kind of true. I'm not sure I'd go that far, but definitely Dio is Or at the very the least, it would because- not it would not be as interesting. That for sure, because Dio is what adds that interesting, that dynamicism that makes JoJo's what it is. I mean, you wouldn't have the dog in a furnace. Nor would you have the iconic line, do you remember how many breads you have eaten in your life? Which I think defines the nature of that character, and that holier-than-thou, that almost pretentiousness that he aspires to godhood, like that he feels he is above other human beings, and they are all beneath him. Like, I think that in particular is a really character defining line. And I also, it's a mimetic line and a well deserved one because it kind of reflects kind of the absurd concepts that the series is for. Yes, it's, well. it's mimetic, uh, along with most of JoJo. Yes. Yeah. Jo- uh, JoJo has become so mimetic that literally everyone thinks that. Everything is a JoJo's reference now. Yeah, it, but basically, basically, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is the anime manga equivalent to a meme, and it's transcended memes so much that actual memes that 
came from the series people don't recognize anymore. <laughs> like the to be continued. I know. Like literally, where where do they think it came from? I I don't, I don't know. Uh, that's strange. But let's move on to a discussion of part two, Battle Tendency. As we discussed before, killing off Jonathan, killing off the main character of the series was a big deal. It was unprecedented in the Shonen Jump canon. So the part two, Araki really had to impress readers, quickly get them on board with his new protagonist. And I think he succeeded in that. I think part two is a huge step up from part one. It's even though it doesn't introduce stands, what it does with the ripple and what it does with the battles and conflicts feels a lot more like it would be become in later parts in terms of, uh, you know, crazy situations that have unique rules to them, like Joseph and mom's battle, uh, with chariots, the chariot race. Yeah. Uh, and as well as other, you know, memorable things like Joseph and, uh, Caesar's training with Lisa Lisa, uh, the battle with ACDC, all that good stuff. And also, it has a very different tone from part one. It's not quite as self-serious. It is as hot-blooded, but it it has a more uh, quirky, fun vibe because of, I think mainly because of how uh, funny and confident and generally, like, good, generally, like... Mischievous? Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Mischievous, but... Also, a character who is unfettered by, you know, danger, who laughs in the face of danger, literally. Uh, Joseph Joestar as a character is just such a treat, such a fun character. And he's such a unique contrast to Jonathan because whereas Jonathan was such a noble, moral character, Joseph is not above using dirty tricks or simply running away if a fight gets too dangerous. And I think that's part of what makes him so lovable and so different from other protagonists. He's a, you know, he's a trickster, but he still has his humanity to him. He still has a good heart. He still has a good heart, but whereas other characters... Would, other like protagonists would never resort to playing dirty or you know a, a tricking opponents uh, or like using cheap tricks against them. Joseph, there's nothing is, is too low for him. He'll do any trick in the book to win a fight, and that's what makes him so fun. In that respect, I think that maybe Gin from Gintama is very much inspired by Joseph in some ways, and I think it's appropriate that uh, Sugida plays both of them in the animes. Yeah. That's definitely true. Um, Yeah, I think we can all agree that pretty much Joseph is probably the best Joestar. Uh, No. No? No. Okay. I, 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 I thought that was the general consensus. Apparently I'm wrong. I He's love definitely Joseph. the most fun. That's what I'll say. But in terms of depth of character, in terms of character arc, Joseph doesn't really have that dynamic of one, and definitely not as fleshed out as one as later characters. This is fair, yeah. And especially, and in terms of like a character who has a really strong arc and whose relevance to their stories is more thematically significant and feels more meaningful and profound, there are definitely other characters that are better than. Joseph, but just in terms of pure fun, he is the most fun. I think that's definitely hands down. 
Joseph's on. It's very it's very hard to hate him. Yeah, I mean, even though he like plays dirty and all this stuff, he's he's well meaning in what he's doing. He's a good guy and he's fun. Like you like going on his adventures. Like at times, like battle, you could you feel like battle tendency could go on forever and you'd be perfectly fine with it cause just because of how likable Joseph is as a character. Mm-hmm. Of the Joe stars, he is the second most recurring after Jotaro. So I think that, you know, even Araki liked him a lot himself. Yeah, for sure. I guess, uh, what do we think about all the other characters in Battle Tendency, though? Caesar, of course, is the deuteragonist of part two. And he, you know, makes a great rival and foil for Joseph. He has a good role in the story, and he plays out with Joseph well and facilitates his character development really well. As a character in himself, he's also a really interesting, tragic character. Uh, and you do feel for a story and in his desperate f- battle against Wham, which, uh, he barely loses, but because of just one tiny mistake costs him his life. But it, with his last moments, he manages to get the ring from Wham that will cure the, uh, poison in Joseph as just a last ditch move to help the cause and help his friends. So he's a very compelling character, like, Definitely a good Joe Bro, uh, but <laughs> uh, but uh, he's not compared to other characters in later parts. Other supporting characters, he's not as interesting. Yeah, he's I guess. he's not a bad character, but like if I had to like pick uh, my favorite supporting characters, he would definitely not be my favorite. That's for sure. And all honestly, I think Willie Zeppeli from Part One had a more interesting personality, even. Yeah, but. Caesar is a very compelling character in his own right. Lisa Lisa is very cool character, like the first female character in the series who fights and also has kind of her own thing going on, I guess, uh, to put it. Like she, she is the mentor of, you know, Joseph and uh, Caesar in the part. So she is presented as very strong and is very capable. And that's a very cool thing to see, especially for a Shonen Jump manga from, you know, the 80s, where, you know, there weren't a whole lot of strong female characters in battle manga, certainly not those who were considered among the strongest in the world of the series. So that was a really cool thing to see. Uh, it's unfortunate that Lisa Lisa ultimately ends up being kind of a jobber. She, you know, basically she loses against cars and really doesn't have much to do in the series. Uh, she doesn't, isn't able to contribute to the final battle much after that. But, you know, she has a lot of cool moments, like how she defeated that one vampire, like in the Killer Men's Lair. Which was really you know, cool act, cool scene, and I love how she used her scarf and she used her hormone. That's really cool. Uh, Lisa Lisa is a cool character. I wish more resembled her. I kind of wish we had seen her also appear later on, even though you know she probably would have been too old to do anything. But still, she was really cool. And then outside of those two, though, there really isn't much else in terms of the supporting good characters. You forgot about Stroheim, so Oh, I forgot about Stroheim. You How know, could I forget? You know, the, the, about... most, the most lovable Nazi character ever. He he really is. You underestimated the power of German technology! <laughs> German medicine is the best in the world! Did you just look at the Stroheim quote? 
Yes. I'm, I'm going to have to dock points because you didn't say that nearly as loud as you could have. Points? We're not being judged. <laughs> um, this is quote, no, he's, this is quote fights? You have to quote <laughs> Jojo, the most effective? Yeah, you, you have to quote Jojo better than Sid. Um, yeah. But but no, well, actually, in all honesty, you probably couldn't beat Sid, let's be honest. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah, but Stroheim, Stroheim is a lot of fun, too. He's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's kind of funny how he ends up becoming friends with Joseph a little bit. But that's also that's also kind of par for the course with a lot of shonen manga, honestly. You know, the bad guy ends up becoming ends up being cool with the with the with the protagonist. And, yeah. yeah. I wouldn't and classify that. Stroheim as becoming a good guy necessarily, but he shares the same enemy as Joseph, so they become allies and and he's a pretty like effective ally and a kind of effective like partner for joseph in the final fight with cars yeah especially because he becomes a a, a cyborg which yeah is cool. which is pretty awesome. cyborg he has a gatling gun in his cool. chest and yeah that's that's a great scene the return of stroheim that's one yeah. of the best moments of part two for sure a character I actually kind of want to bring up we were we were talking about kid characters in jojo um I really have to say, I feel like uh, Smokey did even does even less than Poco, which is kind of which is kind of surprising to see. Well, yeah. Smokey really doesn't do anything at all. I, yeah, I like he basically he's basically used as a device to kind of introduce Joseph, and then is basically there to hear exposition about Joseph's uh, parentage. And then he's kind of just thrown away, and then shows up near the end. But, but hey, yeah. he be- he becomes the mayor of whatever. I forget what town he becomes. To be the honest, mayor of. I completely forgot about that until like that episode in the anime came out. <laughs> so at least something good came out of him, or good happened to him. I guess Smokey doesn't really do much at all, which is unfortunate. He, I get, I think he could have been a fun character, but yeah, I mean, like yeah. overall though, part two just had like. Compared to part one, like, Battle Tennessee just had such, like, a better supporting cast. You have Caesar, who has this whole, like, rivalry relationship with Joseph. You have Lisa Lisa, which is kind of having a female character that's not necessarily a damsel in, damsel in distress and actually can do stuff and help out in fights. Then you have Stroheim, of course, that's Stroheim. It's like, yeah. Yeah, and I think that as far as villains go, the Pillarmen aren't quite as as like dynamic or compelling as Dio, but they are mostly pretty interesting, and they are very formidable as threats. Uh, they are unnerving in various respects. I think ACDC is the most like unnerving in terms of just pure like weirdness and what the fuck. We- yeah, he's he he seems like he's the most unstable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little, a, a, a little bit, because there, there is that moment where he like cries over his arm getting disintegrated, and then he's like, "Oh yeah, I'm suddenly over it." What was I crying about again? Yeah, yeah, I'm now just gonna murder you. That was a really weird moment. That in Cars' uh guitar, uh air guitar solo. <laughs> oh, that's always that's, that's always that's always a great geez. moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean oh the Pillarmen, like uh, the Pillarmen, I felt were a very interesting idea, and I'm glad that. It actually helps, like, delve into, like, why the stone mask exists and all that stuff. But personally, I feel Cars is probably my least favorite JoJo villain. Because he doesn't really have any, like, sort of, like, quirk to him that other JoJo villains have. Or, like, something, some 
I guess, significant trait that makes him stand out. He's kind of just like this super villain genius who created this stone mask that can create vampires. He's he's basically substitute Dio. I guess in a way, but he doesn't have the same charisma that Dio has. No, he's pretty much Dio without any of the charisma or the theatrics. Yeah, <laughs> and his power is pretty much just a ripoff of Bao's, like, saber thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I think the best villain of Battle Tendency is Wong, because he is a very interesting character. Uh, with his being kind of a more, having his own, like, code of honor. Uh, like, he still fully believes in Kars and, like, his goals. And he's not a good guy, but he has, like, a code of honor. He respects strong warriors and he respects, you know, Caesar's final wishes like he could have easily popped Caesar's like blood bubble that had the antidote in it but he chooses not to out of respect for his last act like Wom is a very interesting villain with because of his cone of honor he's like a more fully realized fleshed out version of uh Tarkus from Phantom Blood in some respect and I think that chariot battle between Joseph and Wom is the highlight of Part two, definitely the best battle, one of the best battles in the series, I think. Yeah, that's and it's a good really one. intense, really cool, and uh, it feels really satisfying to see Joseph defeat Wom, and it's just a really fun battle. And of course, the final fight with uh, you know Joseph and Strahim against Cars is also really insane too, and also <laughs> has know. a great ending. Yeah. <laughs> the the, be- the best part of that fight is easily when Joseph is like, yeah, I planned it all along. Secretly, I did it. But if I tell him that, that's going to really piss him off. And you got to love Joseph for, like, having those kind of reactions and being so, like, such an asshole in that <laughs> way. It's just so great. Literally, if it weren't for those flying rocks, he would have he wouldn't have won. Yeah, I planned out this whole thing. His flying rocks and his severed hand, which pierces Cars' neck and sends him flying even faster into the stratosphere, which but, is awesome. But Sadie planned it all out. Joseph's a genius. He knew all this was going to happen. <laughs> no, no, his his no. Joseph's plan was is that God loves him and he knows it. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> even even God loves Joseph Joestar. Therefore, he's the best Joestar. Yeah, like. The car, the whole stuff with like cars versus Joseph is cool and all, but I, I definitely agree with Sid that Wom versus Joseph is very much the highlight of Battle Tendency, especially since if you think about Wom is the character that creates a lot of the conflict in Battle Tendency, since he's the first one to put, implant the like poison ring inside Joseph that's forcing him to train to beat the Pillar Men. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, p- uh, part, part two is, is I think I think it's safe to say that objectively speaking, it is better written than part one. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. But I mean, I I think honestly, I probably like both parts one and two the same. Maybe I like part two slightly more. That's fair. But I also have to admit, I feel I still feel like my nostalgia for part one kind of beats it out, which probably isn't fair. But you know, at at the end of the day, I think. Without my nostalgia for part one, I probably like both parts the same. Okay. I think then we should move on to talking about 
Stardust Crusaders Part 3, the most popular part. Originally the only part that was brought over here uh, in manga form. Originally the only part that had any anime adaption at all in terms of those OVAs that came out in the 90s and early 2000s. And the one that got a Capcom game. And the Capcom game, which was also also licensed in the story here. And uh, yes, that uh, Stardust Crusaders, for the longest time, was considered the definitive JoJo's part. It was the most popular and most widely known, uh, mainly because it introduced the concept of the stands, the psychic ghosts with uh, strange powers and manifests, and are named as such because they stand beside uh, their user. Stardust Crusaders is also mainly the most famous part because it had Jotaro, uh, who is the most iconic Jojo of them all. He is the face of the franchise even today. He is the most emphasized on all merchandising that features all the Jojos together. Uh, like with the all-star battle cover, it's like Jotaro is the main figure and you see the faces of the other Jojos like in his coat. But Jotaro is the one that's being emphasized as the main Jojo, the main character in this timeline. And also, you know, Jotaro has the most appearances in Sequin Parts. He appears in all, he appears in, in four of the currently eight parts. And honestly, may, might have appeared in more if, you know, the universe didn't reboot and whatever with Part 7. I mean, so, we could argue that he technically is a part of Part 8. Technically. But we'll get into that later. Really. Because that, that's like some yeah. crazy stuff. Yeah. So, there are various factors, but Part 3, for the longest time, was pretty much the most accessible and easy jump into Point 4 JoJo's for at least most Western fans. Because, again, the OVAs were released over here. The manga was released over here by Wiz in the mid-2000s. So that this for a long time was the only way you could get into JoJo's through the West, and the only legal way, legal uh, part of the story you could experience. And I think it is a good entry point into the series because you don't really need knowledge of Phantom Blood and Balance NDC to enjoy it. Certainly, it enhances things, especially concerning uh, little details that involve Joseph and Dio that are callbacks to previous part to the previous parts. But because so much of the cast is new and unique to the part, and the story is so simple, it's very accessible and definitely could attract a lot of fans. Though, interestingly enough, Araki had always planned to make kind of a, tr- a trilogy and have Dio, like, be absent, like, during the middle part, and then have bring him back for the final part of the trilogy. So, Stardust Crusaders is Rocky making good on that long-term kind of idea he had for the series. So it's very interesting to think that he, the, the way fan, the first three parts were designed were that they were meant to be a trilogy from the get-go. And it does feel with Stardust Crusaders, you're getting kind of an ending to that long-term story, that long-term, like, conflict with the Stone Mass and Dio Brando, which I think is very interesting. Yeah, it's, it is worth mentioning that, um, though, I wish I could remember the source on this, but I remember hearing somewhere that, Originally, Iraqi wanted to end JoJo with Stardust Crusaders. I'm not sure if I've ever heard that before. I think that might just be a theory. But he did, oh, he did have a plan. He has stated that he wanted to do 
kind of a trilogy. He wanted to have Dio be absent for a while and then bring him back into the story and then yeah. have the story conclude that and, and have that kind of arc conclude that way. I mean, with that, be, with that being said, I, I honestly, if I, I could see Jojo ending with Stardust Crusaders and being a totally fitting ending. I could yeah. too. Like, it does feel like it wraps up and resolves all the lingering treads and it feels, it does feel satisfying. One other thing to note as an influence for Part Street is that Araki taught of the plotting of Part Street much like uh, RPG and that characters would move from one place to another. And he was also heavily inspired by uh, Around the World in 80 Days for the concept of Part Street in terms of traveling to uh, different countries and a globe-trotting trek. Joseph, you mentioned like the, I think, first few chapters of Yeah. So those are the main inspirations for Part Street. And I think that what stood, uh, what blew Part Street up in Japan and internationally was this globetrotting aspect because it was very unique, uh, for like a battle manga at the time to have this kind of adventure that took place in different locales each time. And even though the series was so episodic, it, kept itself fresh because the locations are always changing and the series knew how to make use of lo- their, its new locations very well and make it feel like the journey mattered and like the places uh, the characters were visiting mattered. And I think that's a part of the huge appeal of Part Street. Yeah, I, uh, something else I also kind of notice when it comes to uh, the character names, uh, I don't think a lot of the... Um, not so much with the stands. The stands at this point are pretty much all named after the, like, at first all the tarot cards and then, um. Then Egyptian gods. And the Egyptian gods later. Um, I think the only, the only stand named after a band or a group would probably be Vanilla Ice's Cream. Yeah. Which is also a great pun, by the way, now that I think about it. Um. <laughs> yeah. But so some, something I kind of noticed with a lot of uh, with a lot of the characters in Part Three is that a lot of the a lot of the characters in Part Three seem to be named after like either hip hop or R and B groups. It's really interesting. Yeah, I think I mean Rocky always had a fascination with you know music and stuff. So like even as far I'm back just as- I'm just saying I'm just saying it seems like in particular a lot a lot of the um, a lot of the names he uses for characters come from groups or artists from that particular genre of music which is something i thought was interesting i think it's because that's probably the kind of music rocky was listening to the time while he was drawing part street probably i think yeah. you can notice a lot of like teams that uh te- like similar like naming conventions as the parts go along like there are similar like genres of music that characters in a specific park will be named after yeah or like other specific like kind of motif that they're named after so i think that you know that r&b like focus for a naming convention in part street was definitely based on the kind of music rocky was listening to at the time um I guess, how do we feel about the characters of Stardust Crusaders? The the Crusaders in particular. I think the Stardust Crusaders is the first, like, huge cast expansion. The first time you have, like, more than, like, three main characters, in a sense. Because you now have a huge group of six. And I think that, as a group, that they're all a lot of fun. And, you know, they play off each other where you are. And by the end of the series, you do feel like these people have become friends and they have become close, and it is, like, very tragic that half of them, you know, die. 
and it feels like a real loss when uh, the Crusaders die. Especially Avdol, who technically <laughs> dies twice, which yeah. is like that's that's really unfortunate, honestly, for him. It's like he j- he just came back into the story, and that and what's what's what makes it even more tragic is that he saves Polnareff twice and it kills him <laughs> yeah. off twice. Yeah. Avdol really gets the short end of the stick in Stardust Crusaders. Yeah. As much as as much as I started liking him around the time around the first time he came back, it, like when, when he first quote unquote dies, um, I mean we find out that that death didn't actually kill him or happen. Um, basically, thanks to whole, whole horse being a, a, a shitty shot, like literally, the he just could, like went under the skin. It totally didn't crack my skull. Whole horse can't even kill himself. He's that useless. Yeah, he's pretty. He's pretty much the Yamcha of JoJo, but yeah. <laughs> that's why i love him so much but but yeah honestly i think two two of my favorite characters in stardust crusaders easily are avdol and polnareff because i feel like i feel like their relationship grows the most and i feel like they're they're i feel like they they both really grow from each other especially polnareff though i mean it is unfortunate that it kind of takes Avdol dying two times and then eventually Iggy for Polnareff to finally uh, uh, learn to mature a little bit. But, you know, I, I still really like uh, Polnareff's uh, growth as a character, especially because I feel like out of all of the Crusaders, he has the most he goes through the most growth. Yeah, yeah Polnareff is definitely the standout character of Sardis Crusaders. He has the most screen time, I think, out of all of them, actually. And he gets in the most fights, and definitely his relationship with Abdal is the most significant out of the relationships between the rest of the Crusaders. <clears throat> because, yeah, those characters start off not liking each other at all, but over the course of the series, they become close to each other. They, like, treasure each other as friends, and yeah. it is really tragic. Like, the, at the Polnareff, like, Abdal sacrifices himself to save Polnareff, and He's just gone, and especially after Avdol told Polnareff, just look out for yourself. We can't waste our time and our attention trying to protect each other. Avdol, like, goes against his own words and saves Polnareff from criminal ice, and it's a very tragic that because, you know, Polnareff doesn't even know what's happening until it's too late. Yeah, Polnareff and Avdol's relationship I feel is like easily the highlight of part three in terms of like characters. Polar, we get to see Polar clearly develop from his like basic origins of wanting to take revenge on the person who killed his sister and then eventually kind of very much becoming a very genuine hero, I feel. And then what's, yeah. Yeah. What are you saying, Golden? No, I was just going to say, I also find it kind of interesting that, um, that Polnareff, you know, for someone who, who is the kind of like Avenger character, you know, going after Jay Guile and all that. Um, I find it interesting that he actually like takes the opportunity to take his revenge and actually ends up killing Jay Guile in the long run. Cause I feel like, I feel like in Shonen manga now, I feel like not a lot of Shonen manga would take that risk because it would make their character look unlikable. Or make him look bad. But I think what works is that Jay Guile is so despicable, you yeah. want to see Polnareff get his revenge. I mean, like, Th- he, they don't true, even, like, yeah. depict Jay Guile as really looking human human. Yeah. Like, the guy has, like, two left hands, his face is all disfigured. It's like... Yeah, he does yeah. He does look like a gross human being. So I guess that helps. Um, 
I wonder if the actual Jay Guile band were were to like find JoJo and they'd be like, "What? I I don't think I don't think I look like that, do I?" <laughs> this I'm gonna sue them. I wonder if Vanilla Ice ever found JoJo. I think he has to be aware of it now after people tweeted at him <laughs> when he visited Egypt and they tweeted, Why'd you give Adol real eyes? <laughs> speaking, speaking of that, I'm still surprised that Viz managed to actually keep Vanilla Ice's name in the part three manga. Did they? Yeah. They huh. didn't have to change it. That's really weird because I know they changed a lot of names for the, um, for the Viz edition of part three. Yeah. yeah. But Vanilla Ice, of all things, they didn't have to change. The, uh, okay, apparently that's the one we're going to keep. That's that's interesting. I didn't know about that. Okay, then. Probably because Vanilla Ice wasn't really active yeah, like, I, at the time. But now he's more active, so maybe, like, if with the reprinted version, with the Jojoniums, they might change the name this time. Yeah, I think if I recall, I, I listened to an interview with uh, Jason Thompson, and... Apparently, at the time, Vanilla Ice was just kind of off the radar, so they felt it was fine to keep the name. But oh, okay. they, uh, now that like Vanilla Ice actually is like more active again, I think they probably will have to change it to what like Namco Bandai uses, which is like Iced, I think. Or either that, or with Crunchyroll's Cool Ice. Yeah, Cool yeah. Ice. Which, eh, I mean, the the name changes are a whole nother thing, and you know. It doesn't really bother me because, like, I I know what all of these characters' names are, and I like the internet exists. You can look them up, so nothing's really like lost. But I, I can understand for some people it could be kind of jarring. But like, I guess that's, yeah. for me, it's like only only if it's like a name change to one of the main cast members, am I bothered by it? And that won't really be a problem until we get to Anasui in Part Six. Because no, none of the other characters really have names that are necessarily going to have to be changed. So, for me, it's I, I'm fine with it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm glad that they didn't decide to rename Polnareff Eiffel like they did in All-Star Battle. Yeah, that Ugh. is so dumb. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really dumb. Uh, we talked about a lot of the supporting characters, I think. I mean, we didn't mention... Yeah, I mean, we only really talked about Polnareff, actually. We didn't really time. talk about Jotaro. We didn't talk about Jotaro, and that's where I kind of want to We didn't talk about Kakuin. Oh, yeah, we, we didn't talk about Kakuin, we didn't talk about Iggy, or even Joseph. Well, see, I want to I say something real quick about Kakuin. The, the thing that kind of gets me about Kakuin is that you don't really understand his character fully until he dies. I think you get enough at the beginning with his motivation. Like, he's indebted to uh, Jotaro and his mother for, like, Yeah, but you help, don't, you, you don't, and that's yeah, in- sure, but you don't, you don't really understand. Like, I feel like if we knew about his past maybe a little earlier about how lonely he was as a child and how literally not even his own parents really understood him, like, he was a complete loner, like, you know, he he felt so lonely because of this thing that inhabited him, you know, his, you know, Hierophant Green, obviously. And I I feel like with that context, uh one of my favorite moments in Stardust Crusaders is actually when uh when Jotaro saves Kakuin from the flesh bud that uh Dio implanted into Kakuin's brain. And basically I mean you know, it's it's kind of funny because Jotaro kind of shows him his his very cold indifference when Kakuin is like, well, why'd you save me? And Jotaro's just like, I don't know. Which, you know, it like, with without Kakuin's, I guess, uh, past in context, 
that scene is just kind of like it's kind of weird and a, maybe a little a, maybe a little hokey but i feel like with kakumin's past in context it kind of like it adds a different context cuz like it feels like I noticed this on like my second rewatch of Star Wars Crusaders that Kakumin actually kind of tears up slightly at the end of that scene, which in the context of like Kakumin's childhood, I think that makes that moment all the more meaningful because it, it feels legitimately like it's the first nice thing that anyone's ever really done for Kakumin, at least as far as we know. Yeah, I think it'd been interesting if we got more hints to that or allusions to that uh, over the course of the series instead of like it all being revealed at the end. But I still think Kakumin as a character, we get enough about who, who he is and what he's about to understand like his role in the story and like his relationship with the other characters and why he's on this journey with them. And I guess, I think, but I also, but I also still feel like out of all the Crusaders, he's kind of the most underdeveloped. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Like, because, I mean, especially, he, especially since he's also taken out for a big part of the story too in the later half. Yeah, that too. Like, he, there's nothing particularly wrong with like how he is like on a regular basis in the manga. He's a likable character and all that, but we just really don't learn that much about him until the very end. And I'd even argue that Jotaro, of all people. Gets more development in part three than Kakyoin. I I think that's kind of fair to say. Like I used to think that Jotaro didn't have much development throughout, but I feel like I feel like he gets. I feel like his development's kind of subtle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Jotaro originally comes off as abrasive and kind of well a punk, but. You know, he is a kind of verbally, like, saying some mean things to his mother. He's, like, telling girls to go shoo off. But time and again in the series, like, we do see that he has a heart of gold. Like, he just has trouble. Kind of, he just doesn't want to express himself openly. And he also is just, you know, he has that kind of just stoic demeanor. And he, he cares a lot about his friends and he always do the right thing but he's just a man of few words yeah. he's just like a very classic uh macho like shonen protagonist kind of in the same way as kenjiro from a similar star he's literally the strong silent type exactly yeah. that's why i feel like he works so much better as a supporting character in parts four and six where you can actually get to see a bit more of him interacting with other ca- other characters without having t- to force him to be the main focus. Yeah, I will say that Jotaro isn't exceptionally interesting as the protagonist because he isn't very expressive and because he doesn't feel as emotionally invested in anything that's going on uh, in the series because he's just so stoic and like self-serious all the time. Uh, but in other parts, in later parts, when he's playing that, playing a supporting role, it works a lot better because you can have him be this kind of character while you have a more like emotional, like expressive main character to play off of and, you know, for him to act as a mentor figure towards. And he works a lot better in that context. But as a main character in Stardust Crusaders, I always felt Jotaro was far overshadowed by all the other Crusaders in terms of personality and like in terms of how much they did and like Jotaro does have some good moments don't get me wrong and he has some really cool moments like when he uh you know pays back steely dan i believe was his name for all the 
shit that uh, he did to him while you know he he his uh, stand was like in Joseph's mind, and you know Jotaro couldn't hurt him otherwise he'd be hurting <laughs> Joseph. So you know he kept a uh, he so Selenem was ordering Jotaro around, uh, licking his feet. making him lick his feet like <laughs> shop uh, making him shoplift and then. Calling him out so that the shopkeepers would beat Jotaro up. Yeah, the 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 payoff for that for that uh, confrontation was definitely satisfying. And yeah, I I do I do want to put a, I want to go on record and say that Steely Dan is also another one of my favorite characters in JoJo for very shallow reasons. One, he's an asshole, and two, he's named after one of my favorite bands. So <laughs> there's that. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Yeah, that was just a great Jotaro moment. But of course, the iconic Jotaro moment, I think, is his match with Darby, the game, the gambler, and the, his like complete bluff against Darby, where he literally has crap cards. He has nothing to play on, and he doesn't but even know how to play poker. He doesn't even know how to play <laughs> poker. He but also doesn't so, know how to play video games. He just <laughs> manages to out-intimidate Darby to the point that Darby just gives up inside of his soul, and that's how Darby loses. And literally, Darby would have won if, like... You know, he had actually gone through and, like, played the cards. But, like, Jotaro was just so intimidating and just so confident that Darby lost confidence in himself. And that was just a really amazing moment. It was like, oh, my God. I mean, Jotaro is so badass that he can, he can, like, make you give up just by staring at you seriously enough. I I mean, he he does seem like a pretty scary guy. He is. (laughs) But he's got a good poker face for someone who doesn't know how to play poker. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But yeah, so Jotaro has a lot of great moments. And I think, of course, you know, uh, his his action scenes are great. Like, you know, Star Platinum is a very simple stamp, but it lends itself to like some really cool moments. And, you know, or, 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 uh, that's just really great, you know, iconic, you know, like, kind of catchphrase. Battle call, yeah. First battle cry, yeah. So, everything about Jotaro, like, screams cool and screams iconic, and, like, that's really great, but he's not one of my favorite JoJo's, just because, in terms of character, he's just not as interesting as other JoJo's, especially coming off of Joseph, who is this really fun, really dynamic character, really expressive. Jotaro, in contrast, just isn't as fun. I'd say by the end of, like, the whole original timeline. I at least like him more than Jonathan and Giorno. But yeah, he doesn't he doesn't compare to Joseph and even JoJo's that come later. Simply because of how I guess not necessarily emotionless, but how like I guess subtle his like actual feelings are throughout the majority of part three. He's not a bad character, but he's maybe a little too quiet, a little too stoic. Yeah, ju- ju- yeah. Ju- yeah, like, my least favorite and kind of, I mean, it is, I, I, I mean, I guess it is my least favorite, but also what kind of makes Jotaro interesting is that we're not, we don't really get inside of his head too often. Like, he's he's definitely one of one of those characters that, like, we never get to hear him monologue at all. Like, he, he really does kind of keep to himself. Thus, kind of, it kind of makes him a little, a little hard to read at times, which I think is kind of an interesting trait about his character, but also I think kind of 
backfires on him a little bit because he's he's not as he's definitely not as expressive at all like his 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 emotions and how he shows them are definitely a lot more subtle which i think i'm not sure if this is pretentious to say but i feel like it may be maybe lost on a lot of people who watch Stardust crusaders but even then you know he's i think because of how expressionless he he is most of the way does it doesn't make him a very interesting or fun character. Like you said, definitely not comparative to, uh, to Joseph. Mm-hmm. But Jotaro still works fine as a protagonist, just not as interesting as he Joseph. is a lot better as a, as a supporting character. Yeah. Yeah. But I would definitely agree with that. Well, in terms of a former protagonist being in- interesting as a supporting character, Joseph I feel that he was a little underutilized. Of course, they gave him a stand that was not very battle friendly and also had a ridiculous, like, cost in order to use it. He having to literally break an expensive camera. I, I do, I do kind of want to, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. I do kind of want to argue that a little bit because I feel, I feel like to be fair, the series does kind of go out of its way to kind of emphasize how useless Hamon is kind of against a lot of these stands that they fight. Yes, that's true, uh, but still, I mean, it would have been nice to see Joseph be able to have a more active role in some fights, but at the same time, Joseph is a fun enough member of the sporting cast. You have to love his uses of English, like, oh my god! Holy oh, shit! Yes, yes, yes! Oh my god! He's he's basically a walking collection of catchphrases, <laughs> and honestly, I'm I'm kind of fine with that, because I'm, I'm fine with that being his role, because he is a lot older and a lot sillier at this point. But one thing you I do appreciate about Joseph in Part 3 is that you do see that he is a matured version of the character you saw in Part 2. He doesn't feel like a different character. He doesn't feel like he's a different character entirely. He feels like the a natural maturation of the kid. The, like, cocky, like, self-assured, like, egoist you saw in Part 2. A grown up and having now become a grandfather and having taken on more responsibilities and kind of getting a little wiser at age, not a whole lot, but a little bit. <laughs> he still sucks at flying those planes. Still sucks <laughs> at flying those planes. But he, you, he definitely get the sense that, you know, this is the same character, but he has matured and he ha- he's has like had more experiences that has defined him since we last saw him. And I really appreciate that. And I think that, you know, is a valuable part of the, you know, generational aspect of JoJo's that we get to see these characters change. Oh, some of these characters change over time. Yeah. And I think that's a really cool thing about that. Yeah. Like I, I wish, I wish Joseph maybe had been given like maybe some, a stand that's like slightly more powerful or something so that he at least had like more involvement in the actual fights. Kind of like how Jotaro is able to do in part four. But at the same time, he's still a very, like, fun character in Part 3. He still bounces off really well with the rest of the main cast. Mm-hmm. And I guess finally, let's talk about the last of the main characters I don't think we really got to discuss in much detail, uh, Iggy. So, I mean, Iggy, he doesn't get to do a whole lot. He basically shows up halfway through. 
He shows up halfway through and he really doesn't do anything except like fart around and piss off Homer F a lot. And, but I gotta say, Iggy versus Pet Shop is one of the best battles in the part and it does a lot to humanize Iggy and like really make you sympathize and love him. Yeah, the the, the, not only, not only does that humanize Iggy, uh, his, his, his design kind of humanizes as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it changes from, originally, Iraqi draws him as a more realistic pug dog, but, like, as time goes on, he gives him a more humanish face. Which is weird. Which, to be fair, does, it's weird, but it, to be fair, it does, like, help make him, give, allow him to have more, like, expressions that the audience can empathize with. And like you know, we we'll, and get behind him as a character a little more. I yeah. actually another one of my favorite moments in part three is where um is where I, I think it's I, Iggy's basically on his way to death. I think he's 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 like he's literally dying, and Paul Nareff is just like, man, I was just starting to like him, and I feel like I feel like he's he's kind of <laughs> uh he's kind of channeling the reader there a little bit, which I I really enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's acting kind of like an uninsurgent in that moment because, man, you really just got invested in Iggy, and then he's on that store, and it is where he tried. I have to, I have to, you have to wonder whether that was intentional from Iraqi or not. But either way, I just thought that was kind of funny. If it was intentional, it was a great meta joke, like yeah. kind of like bittersweet joke, but like still really good. But uh, I, Iggy, I think was a lot of fun. I just cling on to the fact that like his moments in like this towards the end of the series, like his fight with Pet Shop. That's one of, I think that's one of my personal favorite battles because it's just so intense and desperate on Iggy's part. It's a a great fight. Yeah. And of course his, uh, his heroic sacrifice in the fight with Vanilla Ice is also heartbreaking as well. Um, I guess um, if we don't have any, I don't know, unless you guys have anything else you want to say about the characters real quick. Um, I guess let's talk about how we felt about Dio's use in this part, because he really didn't get to do, uh, he really wasn't much of a presence until the very end. He basically spent the whole time recharging his batteries. Yeah, but it's interesting because this is kind of the iconic version of Dio. This is the Dio that most people think about when they think about Dio as a villain. And it's interesting because he just doesn't do a whole lot until the very end. But what he does do is just so crazy and so memorable. Showing the knives, the world, uh, the steamroller, the steamroller, yes. steam moving Polarif back a few steps on the stairway <laughs> just to fuck with him too for no real reason other than to fuck oh, with him. Oh, it is um, it is it is chair that he has at the top of the stairs just for monologuing for some reason. His monologuing yeah, chair, which uh, is again another another one of my favorite stupid things about Part Three in particular. Yeah, I mean one thing one thing in Part Three that you can clearly tell about Dio is that. He's a lot more cautious about the Joestar family. Yeah. Like, after Jonathan just, like, completely wrecked him in part one, he's like, I'm, I'm not going to touch these guys directly. Well, I'll just have these minions do it. It'll be easier. <laughs> so, I, 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 I'm kind of somewhat bothered that Dio didn't get involved more until the very end. But at the same time, it, it makes sense. Yeah. I guess, I mean, overall, the characters in Parts 3 are very simple and straightforward, but they are a fun group overall. But I know people have criticisms against the episodic style of Parts 3, the stand-of-the-week format, and that turned a lot of people off, especially in the anime, where 
that and translating that from the manga format ended up with having a lot of two-parters, which did wear down on people. I think that part three would have been better served if it was a three-course season rather than four-course. It's uh, really funny, actually, when you think about it, because part three compared to, say, you know, the next part, part four, you know, when you think about the manga... Part four is technically the longer than part three in the manga, but in the anime, part three ended up being longer than part four. Yeah. yeah. I think that mainly probably has to do with the fact that part three is the most popular part. Probably. Right. Like when they were trying to make an anime, the anime of JoJo's, like people were hesitant because they didn't think that they weren't, didn't want to do it for any other part other than part three. Like, doing it from part one was a really hard sell, but David Productions managed to go ahead with it. So, yeah, I mean, people were eager to eat up a part three anime in Japan. That's the most famous part still there. So I think, like, trying to get the most out of that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, but I think that just in terms of the best, like, way to tell the story, I think that actually having it be shorter would have been a lot better suited. Yeah, like, they could have easily fit this stuff into three cores. Like, you have episodes like Wheel of Fortune and the Sun that are just completely stretched out into, like, 24 minutes for just for the sake of actually having time filler. Yeah. Yeah, Wheel of Fortune definitely is, like, the weakest battle, I think, in JoJo, comparatively. Actually, I guess... I think maybe, like, the last thing we should touch on before we head on to part four is, uh, I guess, what what do we think about the fights in general now that stands are introduced at this point? They're very simple because the powers are not as complicated yet. Yeah. Like, Star Pilot literally punches things good. Uh, <laughs> Chariot is just, uh, Chariot is a knight that, like, fights with a sword. Magician's Red uses fire. Uh, Emerald's Splash. Throws does. Emeralds. Those emeralds, yeah. Yeah. So it's not, they aren't very crazy yet, but you get a lot of like interesting ones pretty quickly. I mean, you get stuff that are completely like weird, like strength, the giant boat. You get things, you get, uh, you know, deck 13, which is really creepy and interesting. Yeah, definitely very, uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street esque, which, which also, by the way, this is also, I think, the part where Iraqi got to express his love for horror movies the most. Sans part four, I think. Well, I mean, the horror element has had been around since part one, but but this is this is the one with the most I think homages two. to his his favorite yeah, horror movies. The most homages for sure to at least like classic tropes, literature, and movies. Like the fight against um, what's the name of this sand? Uh, Devo, Devo, however you pronounce that. That's the yeah. devil. Yeah. No, D- Devo the pu- the puppet wielder. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's definitely um inspired by Chucky. Yeah. Um and then Death 13 is definitely a nightmare on Elm Street kind of thing and so on and so forth. I think the most interesting fights to me were probably Polnareff and Kakuin versus uh the Hangman and Jay Guile and then probably Avdol and Joseph's fight against uh Mariah. Yeah, those were really fun fights too. Yeah, I mean the mo uh, for me like the most interesting were definitely the more untraditional ones. Like I love Jotaro versus Darby the Gambler. Uh, yeah, I mean I also liked the fight with Darby the Gamer. Darby the Gamer is so much fun. Yeah, uh, but I, I so I like really all those untraditional ones that start popping up towards the end of Part Three. 
I think those are really interesting, and those are the kind of things I like seeing in battle manga. I like seeing like fights that are not what you usually think of from fights. They're not pe- pun- they're not about punching people, but there's still like high stakes involved, and I really like seeing those kind of things explored in JoJo's. And they first really start. I mean, you get a you kind of get it uh, at the st- uh, in part two with the chariot battle, but this is where you start seeing a lot more variety in terms of like the conflicts and battles in JoJo's, and I think it's really. But cool. I, I also, I mean, that is true. But I also feel like to some extent, this is sort of a demo reel of what Iraqi would ultimately perfect i think in part four yeah it's a prototype it's not as refined and again like i said the powers are much simpler but with part four he definitely uh expands on things and experiments and does a lot more crazy powers which are is really cool and unique yeah i mean i even remember like iraqi mentioned once that a lot he had a lot of like very untraditional stands that he was thinking of near the end of part three and he wanted to put them in but because it was so close to the fight with Dio, they ended up just going into part four. So a lot of the creative, very creative stands that were meant for part three just end up going into part four. That's actually something Iraqi has noted that had happened with the original parts too. Like uh, a lot of ideas he had for part one ended up he having to be done in part two and a lot of things he wanted to do in part two ended up having to be done in part three. So all his unused ideas, he just reuses them in later parts. It's an endless cycle. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Ultimately, I think, though, that even with with people who had problem with the episodic formula, I think that universally, the final battle between Jotaro and Dio is universally regarded as a classic and totally worked the build-up and wait for it. Yeah, that fight is insane. It's really good. Jotaro ending up in the sewer manhole for some reason is probably the best part of that <laughs> fight. Uh, aside from the steamroller. And the and the knives. And the knives. And the, the part where Jotaro good. literally has to stop his own heart. And then Dio tries to decapitate him with a stop sign. That is, that's pretty crazy. So, Parts 3 has a lot of memorable, iconic moments. But even though for the longest time it was the most popular, I'm not sure nowadays that most people would agree it's the best. Especially after the anime adaption of the next part came out. Part 4, Diamond is Unbreakable. Oh, Part 4 is good. Yeah, it's good. And the idea behind this was... That with parts three, Araki had had characters, you know, that had been lying in wait for, you know, the protagonists to come and engage with them and like, or were like tracking them down to fight with them. And so he kind of thought about an idea where he had one setting where there were a bunch of enemies for his protagonists to encounter and get in conflicts with. So he, that's where the idea of setting apart in just one central location, the town of Morio came about. And just having Morio be infested with a bunch of stand users with unique powers. And then the murder mystery angle of the part came about, was inspired by an actual real-life killing spree that was happening in Japan, a serial killer spree that was going on at the time that was actually causing some fear and paranoia. And that was... And that... I, and like that sensation of fear and paranoia and like that sense of dread that there could be an enemy like 
anywhere you turned. Iraqi wanted to use that kind of sensation and apply it to this part. And that's kind of what characterizes Diamonds Unbreakable as this kind of murder mystery kind of uh, slice of life serial. I have a quick question. Have How much of, of the Dwayne scans have you guys read? Uh, I only know the iconic, the iconic memetic quotes from that. Yeah, basically me too. Word. I read the good uh, translations for that. Yeah, because originally I read the entire thing with the Dewang scans. Oh, you poor soul. Yeah, <laughs> that is not a fun experience. And that kind of goes into the fact that I have a very... I initially had a very complicated relationship with part four. Because those scans are just terrible. Especially in the first half, where they don't even translate entire pages of text. <laughs> well, well, now we don't have to worry about that, because it was confirmed that Viz is going to be bringing out part four at some point. Yeah, thank yes. God. And of course, we have the excellent anime adaption to watch, too. Oh, oh yeah, the anime was great. Uh, as, as, someone, as someone who watched that week to week, I really enjoyed that immensely. But I'm really glad we now live in a world where Dwayne can just not, never have to be the only option to be read. Yes. Because the saving grace of Dwayne is only the fact that Kira is just such an awesome villain that any bad translation overwrites any bad qualities that you would get from it. <laughs> but yeah, I guess, um, do we want to talk about Part 4's characters as well? Yeah, I think that Josuke is a definite step up from Jotaro. He has a lot more personality. He's a lot more fun. He's a lot more closer to Joseph, and which makes sense since he is Joseph's illegitimate son. But yeah, I, I, Joseph is a great protagonist. I think that though he does also get a little overshadowed by the supporting cast. Yeah, that's I kind think- of that. Sorry, that that that's actually kind of my problem with JoJo's overall Sans Part Two. Is that it's? It feels like so far, Jonathan, Jotaro, and Josuke are all kind of overshadowed for the most part, kind of by. Well, well, actually, I take that back. Not not really Jonathan, because a lot of the supporting cast for Part One, while they're not bad, aren't really like as strong. I guess. I guess really with Part Three and Part Four in particular, it feels like it feels like the the main or the supporting cast kind of overshadows the main JoJo character. Yeah, I'd say that's a problem with a very much the kind of middling part of JoJo, like three through five, very much, because even Jordo has this problem, we'll get into that later, but yeah, because you have characters like Koichi and Okiyasu who have like very, I feel more, I guess, prominent personalities compared to Josuke. And definitely, and, the- and definitely Koichi in particular is kind of, to me, is kind of the Polnareff of part four in the sense of, I feel like he's kind of the one who goes through the most growth. Yeah, Koichi oh, yeah, sure. definitely has the strongest arc of the character, of any of the characters in part four. He also has, like, the most presence. Uh, I mean, we see, like, echoes as a stand develop and from three stages, and we also see Koichi as a character change from this timid kid into, like, this confident like, almost badass, and it's really cool to see. And we also see him grow kind of a friendship with Jotaro that really pays off in the end as well. I know when it's adorable, and I love it. Yeah, and it's not only with Jotaro, like, Koichi seems to have the most interaction with the rest of, like, the kind of Morio throughout Part 4. Like, he's always talking to other people. He's very much narrating Part 4 
for the most part. And he's pretty much friends with everybody, even Rohan. Yeah, yeah. even Rohan likes him, and Rohan hates the rest of the cast. Yeah, so he's like the one who's like very much connecting everyone. Yeah, so Kochi is kind of like a really, really important central figure in part four. He connects most of the cast to each other, and he also you know, helps drive a lot of elements of the story. Which forward. is which is kind of interesting because I've mostly run into personally I've mostly run into people who really don't like Koichi, which I can kinda see why, but like I think legitimately Koichi is my favorite character in part four. Yeah, I think he's great too. I, I don't understand the idea that he's annoying. I never understood people who felt he was annoying, because I don't see what's annoying about his character. Usually the people who say that end up liking Rohan a lot more. Oh yeah, but I personally, Rohan is my favorite of the protagonists. But he's, he's good too. Like He's just such an awesome asshole. Like, yeah. You have to love him. <laughs> and he's, he's, a, he's a good character, I, I do have to admit. Though, I do wonder if sometimes maybe he is just a tiny bit overrated. I don't know. I, I don't, it is kind of hard to tell. Some people overrate him, but I just love Rohan just on the grounds of how fun his personality is. He is just so like crazy that he will allow his house to be burned down or to win <laughs> a dumb dice game against Josuke because he hates his guts so much. He'll also punch a kid in the stomach. Which yeah. it, which legitimately is probably my favorite Rohan moment. And when I first watched that, I think I I had to pause the episode because I was laughing for ten minutes straight because I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> yeah, Rohan definitely seems to be the most popular character from Diamond is Unbreakable. Since he, he has, has spinoffs. Won. Yeah, he has tons of spinoffs. Yeah, I mean, he's such a fun character, though. He's kind of like a dick at times, but that's what makes him like so charming. Yeah, one thing, uh, one myth that I'd like to dispel is the idea that Rohan is based off of Iraq himself. But Rohan, the letters, Sid, the letters, all the letters as they match up. Well, <laughs> the Iraqi has come out himself uh, in interviews saying that Rohan isn't a reflection of himself, but the kind of mangaka he'd inspire to be. Because Rohan is this super, like, confident, super talented, like, genius that can draw, like, a full, like, name in just, like, a, a couple hours, which is crazy. And, yeah, so, Rohan is not who Araki is, but the kind of person that Araki kind of wants to be. So he's kind of like, he's kind of like a fantasy. It is very easy for people to think that he is a self-insert, though, to be fair. Well, only for shallow reasons, yeah, honestly. Like the Just fact the that, fact that he's a mangaka. Yeah. That's really the only connection you can make. That's honestly. True. I'll say that one of my favorite things about Rohan is just this detail that apparently during the climax of part six where the world was ending, Rohan completely ignored it and just drew his manga and that's how he survived the apocalypse. Yeah, huh. and George in the George Joser novel. They explain that Rohan is able to survive Made in Heaven resetting time 36 times by just focusing on drawing manga continuously. Yeah. That's kind of amazing. So his power to draw manga is on the same level as Gold Experience Requiem, which is insane. <laughs> that, that's insane. 
I mean, there's a lot of great characters in part four we could talk about, but I think just to save time, I think we should talk about the real MVD of part four, the main antagonist, Yoshi Kagekira. And the best villain of all time. Personally, I love the villain of part six more, but Kagekira is just a fantastic villain and so unique and atypical compared to other, like, shonen villains and yeah in general because he this is character who he's not out to rule the world he doesn't have like any high ambitions all he wants to do is live a quiet ordinary life that just happens to involve dismembering girls' hands and dating there's them. nothing dating wrong them. with that Sid everyone does that it's adorable human behavior Kira is so unnerving because he has just this warped sense of what is right and what is healthy for him. And he believes that he is in the right and like everything he's doing will work out because he is in the right. He basically acts like a real serial killer. He does. He acts like he's a real psychopath and serial killer. And also in the sense, not just in this because of how warped his mindset is, but because of how frankly normal he is generally like he can pass off as like a normal person to most people like he has a job he interacts with co-workers and none of them really suspect him of being this weird guy they just see him as like another like every man uh, working joe yeah but kira's true personality is really twisted and he reflects like Kind of how some of the most horrifying people are hide in plain sight because they just, they don't fit the stereotype of what you would think like a terrible, like truly monstrous person would be. Because Kira isn't as bombastic or like flashy as other JoJo's villains or just any other villains. Like he looks like a normal dude. You would pass him by the street and you wouldn't pay him any mind. Yeah, but you get inside his head or get close to him, and you see like just how horrifying he really is. One of the best Kira scenes is like when he's kind of getting revenge on this couple who kind of was rude to him, and he blows the guy up, and then he goes on this whole monologue talking about what his likes and dislikes to this girl as she's just sitting in the corner horrified, and then he like puts earrings on her. Well, first he likes, he gets her to, um, cut his nails, and he's just, like, completely calm while he, while doing this, like, he only, like, starts, like, becoming angry when she, like, refuses to do something, but mostly he's talking to her in this calm voice, and then eventually, like, he just, like, really, like, calmly gives her, like, earrings that have her boyfriend's, like, severed ears on them. And he's just like, he's, it's such a disturbing scene, but it really just sells like how Kira's personality and like how it is so subdued most of the time. But like, he is like kind of a real life monster in many ways. And I think that's what's so appealing about Kira is that like he is. And I think what's, what's kind of appealing about this part in particular is that the characters feel a lot more real and believable as people than other characters from the other parts like they don't feel like mo- like 
I mean, they they are so they are exaggerated. So I wouldn't go so far to say they don't feel like manga characters, but you can feel like Morio is a, a believable community. You can feel like these people are believable people who are interacting within that community, and because of that, you can feel the stakes, even though they are relatively small scale compared to previous parts. You can feel the stakes, and you can feel them having a lot of weight. And Kira's, like, the danger Kira process to this community has a lot of weight because it feels so real and believable. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, Nishikai Kira is my favorite JoJo villain and one of my favorite villains overall, like any manga. And it very much is down to the fact that he is very different from other villains in JoJo and villains in general. He's just very much an ordinary guy in every respect. He's average in pretty much everything he's done, but in this one section of his life, he is very much warped in his mind that he is a dangerous person, and he's willing to do all these crazy things that he believes are okay. And one of the things I like about the villains in Part 4 is that they're not, like, really... I mean, they are all they exaggerated. They aren't, like, super villain, like, crazy... But they aren't crazy fanatics yeah. in the same vein as the as Dio subordinates in Parts 3. Like, they're just kind of, A lot of them are just kind of assholes who use their power for selfish reasons. Like, like that one guy, I forget his name, the really short guy. Hazamada. Yeah, the, the one with the lock. Yeah, Hazamada. Yeah. And even the guy who, like, serves as, like, our kind of main villain for, like, the first half of Part 4, Akira... Or Toishi, he's very much just cares about hiding all the evidence of how he got, like, his stand, and then using his powers to become a rock star. Yeah, like, he has a very, like, small-scale ambition compared to other, like, villains. Like, all he wants to do is to be this rock star. But, like, how he, you know, kind of keep possession of the stand arrow, just to have, like, this power control. Like, he's not, he's, like, no, he he has no, like, world-conquering ambitions. And that's what's so interesting about the villains of Part 4, is that they have these just small-scale ambitions. They aren't trying to achieve anything, like, grand. But they're, like, but in their, like, selfishness, and because they have these powers that let let them achieve, like, impossible things for most people, they let that go to their head, and they let the twist their personalities a little bit until, for most of them, they get some not- sense knocked into them and then they reform. One thing that's great about a lot of the uh, villains in Part 4 is that they do stick around or, like, they stay in the community after they're de- defeated. Like, not, very few of them are outright killed or disappear. And a lot of them end up coming back and helping out uh the the characters down the line, the most notable being, uh, what's his name? The guy who had uh, Highway Star. Star. Uh, he he had a he, his return was really great because he really helped out Josuke and save him and Koichi from Enigma Boy. So like characters, so it's really cool to see some see that in the manga, like characters. Aren't almost a lot of the characters aren't just one and done villains, but they'll come back or they'll stick or you'll see them stick around and like show up again, even in just the background because they're all living in this town. And I think that's just a really cool aspect about part four. Yeah, it really like establishes this sense of community that Morio has as a city. And 
I feel that's definitely one of the best aspects about part four is that setting that you have all these characters. They very much are all interconnected and you have like a city that you know are you're gradually knowing more and more about over time. Yeah, Morio feels like a character in itself because it feels lived in. Like you get to know the town and the people who live in it so well. There's a sense of community and it. it feels kind of refreshing. Indeed. And that I think that among all the settings, like Morio is the best in all JoJo's. Yeah. Pretty much. I yeah. definitely agree. So part four, just in general, is just an incredibly fun time. The first third when that just focuses on Akira, it doesn't have as quite as much intensity as the Kira focus portions do, but like just in general, the entire thing is a lot of fun. And I can see why Araki considers it his favorite part, because like just how we were talking about, like what he likes about part four is that he created this kind of relatable world that felt kind of real and like the characters felt like he could actually hang out with them. The reason why Josuke is his favorite character is because he Araki can actually imagine Josuke being his friend and actually hanging <laughs> out with him more That's so cute. than Jotaro, who <laughs> he kind of sees as more of a mythical hero. He's so distant. He doesn't feel like a real person, but for Araki, like Josuke feels like a real person. He feels like he can, get to know him like he would another human being. And I find that kind of an interesting thing. And Rocky has stated that he doesn't feel like he's finished with part four. He feels like he could return to it and write forever if he came back to it. And <laughs> I did, did you know, he, he has done that because he he's doing an alternate version of part four in part eight. So to be fair, that's very different though. We'll it's very different, that. but he has returned to Mario. Yeah. We'll get into that later. But yeah, I mean, he, I think the fact that he keeps using Rome and having him show up in one shots every now and again yeah. also speaks to like how much he adores part four and loves returning to those characters in that world definitely can we uh let, let, let's talk about the fights a little bit again uh before we move on because i really fe- i really do feel like i feel i really feel like at this point iraqi is really sort of uh more, more so than part three definitely is kind of perfected um kind of perfected his stand fights at this point. They're a lot more interesting and a lot more complicated, I think. And I also yeah. th- I also think definitely compared to part three, especially with a lot of uh, Kira's stuff, there's this sense of like tension and suspense that really keeps you on the edge of your seat, kind of like with uh, Shigechi's confrontation with Kira. Like, I guess really that entire, uh, that entire episode, especially where uh, Shigechi accidentally takes... Uh, uh, the bag with uh, with Kira's uh, uh, sandwich. Sa- yes, a sandwich, you know, and has to spend the entire episode trying to get it back without getting noticed until he gets found out by Shigechi at the end. I thought a lot of the suspense there was done very well. Um, and I think just to name off some of my favorite fights in part four really quickly, I think um, the very first fight, the fight against, um, what was it, Aqua Necklace? Yeah. I, I thought that was a very good fight to start off with. Um, thought that had a lot of good problem solving behind it. And then um, the, the 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 hunt for the rat, I thought was very good too. 
uh, I, I thought that I had a really good uh, payoff at the end. And then uh, Sheer Heart Attack is definitely one of my favorite fights, too, because we get to see Jotaro get to kind of try his hand at the fight. And then we basically have Koichi, who, who basically gets to try his hand at the fight, too, which is kind of the, uh, I guess, kind of the whole point of that fight was, you know, Jotaro knows what he's doing, but Koichi doesn't really trust him at first. And then because of that, he kind of ends up screwing Jotaro over a little bit and gets him injured. And Koichi feels bad. Then he's like, okay, now we're going to have to try to do this. But basically ends up finding, okay, Jotaro maybe kind of had a method to his madness there. I probably should have listened to him. Which their relationship, I think, kind of grows in that fight. But also I think Koichi definitely grows as a character from that fight as well. And then I think probably... Uh, I definitely another like my last favorite fight would definitely have to be against the fight against Enigma because I, honestly I think so far Enigma is probably my favorite stand power in all of JoJo. It's like such a weird power, but it's all it, it like it leads to some really really shocking, really great stuff. Honestly, like the whole part with um with with uh, Josuke opening up the paper. The, uh, him finding nothing at first, and then a gun coming out of it, <laughs> and yeah. just 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 the really crazy stuff that Enigma can do, and all the stuff he can put in his paper, just led to a lot of like really weird, surreal, but really tense action. And I just i I really like that entire fight. Enigma Boy is a great one. One of the great things about sand fights in JoJo's is that they all are like their own little mini mysteries. And so it's all about characters trying to figure out what the other person's power is and then figure out a way to use their own power to counteract and uh, outwit it. And it's always a lot of fun because there's always a lot of suspense in trying to see like who can outdo the other and really what the other can do against like some some really absurd and crazy powers. And it's always a lot of fun just to see like what the characters will come up with and how they will like figure out a way to go around uh, some some of the dangers of powers like how uh I keep forgetting his name but the user of uh Highway Star how he manages to save Josuke Goichi from Enigma Boy uh while he's like being shredded in the paper shredder like he held hold on to, held on to them and was able to pull them out and that like uh have Crazy Diamond punch the user of Ignoble Boy. Fungami, that's Fungami, yeah. So that was, it was really cool, like, little twists that, and twists and turns that always happen in these fights that I really like. The, the thing is about part four compared to part three is that, whereas with part three, you know, the, the fights were pretty simple all in all. I mean, they were still enjoyable, but like most of them, most of them either involved Jotaro realizing, oh, wait, I could just punch the stand user and the stand power won't work anymore. Or Star Platinum will basically be written to use some kind of ability that we never knew he could use before. But, you know, basically Star Platinum being used to kind of move the story along, you know, basically using uh, usurping certain abilities for the sake of the story. Like, 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 Like with Star Platinum literally sucking up um, Eniaba's stand uh, with the oh, fog, yeah, that <laughs> but but yeah. but part four actually has like 
actually has like like the characters of part four actually have to do some kind of problem solving with a lot of the stand fights there's actual like thought going on here that like they actually kind of have to think their way out of these fights and i think that's what makes these fights a lot more interesting yeah i mean part three was very much i feel a rocky dabbling with the concept of stands and part four was very much him refining it to the point where it's kind of gets very creative and it's less about which stand is stronger and which user uses their stand to the best of their ability. Yeah. I also like the fact, because I think other than Enigma, the hand is probably another one of my favorite stands just because it's such an overpowered ability, but the fact that it's it, it's never going to be used to its fullest extent because Okuyasu is just such a dumbass, is such a great yeah. It makes him such a great, great character, I think, to have that power. <laughs> yeah, I agree. That's just, the hand is a really, another really cool one that has really good moments, like in the fight with Red Hot Chili Pepper and in the final fight with Kira. But of course, Okuyasu generally is too inept and too uh, stupid to realize its potential all the time. But yeah, I agree that one of the great things about Part 4 is that Star Platinum is not, uh, there isn't a one stand that is like the guaranteed like solution to any fight. Like with parts three, like Star Platinum could solve pretty much all the problems by itself. Star but, Platinum punch, Star Platinum win. Yes, but it's not the case in part four. Like in part four, like it, every character needs to really work to win. And even Jotaro gets a lot, in a lot of the fights, a run for his money and isn't able to beat his opponents easily. Angelo gives him a tough time. Freaking rats give him a tough time. <laughs> sheer heart attack. And sheer heart attack. Like, Jotaro himself has to struggle a lot more in part four than he ever had to in part three, which is really interesting. And I think that adds a lot to uh, the appeal of the fights in part four. And like, it definitely has it step up a level in terms of intensity and creativity. But yeah, I think overall part four is good. Yes, part yeah. four. It's definitely, I, I, for years it was considered a fan, the secret fan favorite among many. I'd say it's less of a secret now. Yeah, <laughs> now it's, now it's like a widely accepted and beloved uh, installment of JoJo's. I think it's a, it's become a lot of people's favorite parts, especially thanks to the uh, climactic couple episodes. And we didn't mention, like, uh, I didn't mention, like, my, some of my favorite fights, but like I had said with parts three, uh, I always love the untraditional kind of battles. And so for me, my favorite part of part four and really my favorite um, part of all of JoJo's so far, I think, is uh, Killer Queen bites to dust. Another, another one bites to dust story, where you know it's it's a it revolves around Hayato, who is the little kid character of this part, who has no stand power, no powers whatsoever. He is the one who has to like really save the day and figure out a way to defeat Kira's stand power and like save everyone and it's just such an interesting story because it's the weakest character has to take on the most deadliest character and find a way to outwit him and there's so much emotion riding on the entire and so much intensity riding on the entire thing and a lot of this version to get Kira to undo bites to dust so that the other characters can fight against him and like save the day and it's just uh, that's easily my favorite like 
part of all of JoJo uh, so far. Like, I absolutely love those chapters and episodes. Yeah, I, I love pretty much almost all the fights in Part 4. I'd say the best one for me was easily Sheer Heart Attack. Since it kind of, like, for me, it kind of showed that Jotaro isn't, like, some invincible wall, like, that can just destroy everything. And Star Platinum actually can be beaten. Yeah. In theory, because we never really... We had seen Jotaro get injured a bunch. We had seen him get, like, seriously hurt. But we never saw him really be on the risk of death. Mm-hmm. Like, we, except for, I guess, Dio. But that's kind of it. So yeah. that, that, that fight really showed, at least for me, that <clears throat> it's not all about power anymore. Stands are much more than just the physical strength stat. All the different attributes of stands matter. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Part 4 is great. Now, now we're moving on to the parts that haven't been animated and Colton hasn't seen. So <laughs> yes. I think we'll talk a little more briefly about these than the uh, yeah. first four parts, which we spent kind of collectively two hours on. I mean, this next part we don't have to talk too much about. Yeah, because the next part is rather unpopular among certain sections of the JoJo fan base. It's easily the most divisive. I, yes, I, I do uh, I do I do just want to say real quickly, this is gonna this is basically gonna be the part of the show where I'm just gonna listen to these guys talk about the next couple of parts and I'm just gonna hear a bunch of JoJo out of context and I'm gonna be like, what? That really happens? Okay. I whatever. That doesn't make any sense. That's not gonna make any sense in context or out of context really, but whatever. This is gonna be like the manga fight where Colton's here for moral support. <laughs> <laughs> Huh. Yeah, so let's talk about Part 5 and Joe or Rio, which is rather controversial among JoJo's fans. Like, it, pe- people love it, people hate it. It kind of it kind of helps. It kind of kind of doesn't help that I don't think um I think this part at the moment is being retranslated, but for the most part I still think uh I still think people still have to kind of rely on the uh, older, more terrible translations of Part 5. Yeah, it's really, the translations really, I don't think, are the problem so much more as the characters and plotting that people take issue with. Huh, okay. Now, just to go over the concept for Part 5, uh, Araki came up with the idea for the story by thinking about the concept of bloodlines that had been a recurring theme throughout the story. And so he also got the idea to make a story from a suggestion from his editor to make a more sadder story with a more tragic main character, one who was ostracized by society, but still had a sense of justice. And so using those ideas, he decided to combine the Joe Star and Dio bloodlines and have a main character who was both, who is the son of Dio, but had Jonathan Joestar's blood through his veins. So he, and growing up, he had been an orphan. Well, not an orphan, but he he came from a very bad home. His mother was fairly neglectful, I'd say. Yeah, and he faced a lot of adversity, but he grew up carrying this very strong sense of justice. And so he dreams to be a gang star. <laughs> Which is like, uh, he wants to join the gangs in order to reform the criminal element of, uh, Italy from the inside out. Particularly stopping the drug trade and stopping drugs from reaching the hands of the children of Italy. 
It's a strong motivation that is marred a little bit by the fact that Giorno's personality is rather dull. He just doesn't have a whole lot of excitement to him, and he is very much kind of like the other protagonists in previous parts, overshadowed a lot by the supporting cast, who is a lot more dynamic and have a lot more personality. In particular, the deuteragonist of Part 5, and some would argue the real main character of Part 5. And one of the best JoJo characters ever. Yes, Bruno Buccioletti, who... Oh boy, Bruno Buccioletti was in so much pain. Oh, he was. He's the zipper guy, right? Yeah, Yeah. his stand is zipper man, so he can create zippers. Uh, just anywhere. If and you were to re- rename Vento Oreo, you could pretty much call it the tragedy of Bruno Buccioletti. <laughs> Bruno Buccioletti is definitely one of the most compelling and coolest characters in JoJo's. And yeah, he, his story ends in such a bittersweet manner. Like the epilogue of, uh, part five, Sleeping Slaves, is about Buccioletti. And I think that's pretty important to note that like, the epilogue of the series isn't about Giorno, but about Buccioletti. I think that kind of speaks to, like, who, where the real heart and real investment in the story kind the of The real came heart from. of gold, right? Yeah. The real heart of gold. Yeah, and I mean, you can even see this in the entire narrative itself, where Buccioletti is the one who's always really taking the initiative, even though Giorno's very much the idea guy. Bruno Buccioletti is the one who's taking the action. He's the one who's making all the moves towards their goals, towards meeting the boss, towards eventually fighting Diavolo. Yeah. It's Buccioletti who makes the call to everyone to betray uh, Diavolo and save Trish and then find a way to defeat Diavolo. Yeah. I mean... It's, it's him who leads that charge, not Giorno. And it's him that the entire group rallies around, not Giorno. Yeah. He is very much like the heart of part five. And that's not, it's not to say that Giorno is like some god awful, unredeemable character or anything. There are some clear subtleties to his character. And it's, it's very much clear that what Iraqi intended Giorno to be is that he's supposed to have the charisma of Dio and very much the honor of Jonathan. But at the same time, Jonathan wasn't that interesting of a character. And that, I feel, kind of hurts Giorno as a character, trying to make him a combination of that and Dio. Because mm-hmm. you can make Giorno charismatic, but without kind of the whole, like, evil, kind of devilish side of Dio, what is there to that? Yeah, I think that Giorno would have been better served if Iraqi had given him more of Dio's personality rather than giving him a lot of Jonathan's. Yeah. I mean, if we're gonna... I think we should go on to, like, maybe another supporting character. I think one that definitely has a very good prominence in this story is Trish. Mm -hmm. Which, ever since part two with Lisa Lisa, we really didn't have a prominent female character who really was involved in the battles in JoJo. And Trish was very much the second coming of female characters in JoJo. She starts out very much as more of a damsel in distress character, kind of like being escorted by a Giorno and Buccioletti's team. But after their betrayal and their them deciding to go against Diablo, she starts to develop her own stand and starts kind of developing her character as a whole, where she gains her own initiative and her own purpose within the story than simply just being this hostage for Buccioletti and 
like pretty much a target for Diavolo. Yeah. And Trisha is a great character. She has a great arc to her. It really is very satisfying to see her take an active, like, stance and, like, be active in the fight, final fight with Diavolo. And I, I think that in general, though, that the supporting characters of part five, the entire Passion gang is really great. Yeah. I think that, uh, I, I really like all of them. Uh, Mista and his stand is, are a lot of fun. Uh, and Narnancia is also a good time. You're forgetting one of them, Sid. Well, yes, the, <laughs> yeah. we have to talk about the elephant in a room and uh, Fugo, who disappears from the series halfway in because Araki gave him a stand that was way too powerful, so he couldn't really use him. So Fugo yeah. is single-handedly one of the worst aspects of Part 5. In my opinion. Just because he is mispotential. He is mispotential, and he has no purpose in the story. Now, I will admit, I have not read the light novels for uh, Part 5, Golden Ring, and Purple Haze Feedback, which Araki himself have recommended as good supplementary material to Part 5, and it helps develop Fugo's character and give it closure. But at the same time, just from the manga perspective of Fugo's character... There's nothing there, and there's no purpose of him being in the story. Yeah, I mean, I think that it would have been great if Araki had stuck to his original plan of having Fugo be a double agent and uh, be really working for Diavolo and betraying the group down the line. But uh, it's unfortunate that he wrote him out of the story without pay off in the manga itself. But at least those uh, light novels yeah. give some closure to the character. So I can't really say I disliked Fugo uh, as much as you do, but, you know, I, I understand. He is a flaw in the series. His, the waste of his character arc. But, yeah, uh, the main criticisms of Part 5, I think, are, one, it returns to the episodic kind of stand-of-the-week format of Parts 3. Uh, but personally, I think that just because they have momentum, because, you know, there is, like, more, like, desperation, like, they're actively being chased and targeted, and that it feels like they are more vulnerable than the Crusaders did. Like, again, in Stardust Crusaders, Jutaro, you know could solve most of the problems just by punching things good with Star Platinum. But Revenge or Rio, like, again, like Part 4, every fight is a struggle and, like, a real battle of wits, and I think that helps it a lot. Another criticism of Vento or Rio is that, I mean, how does King Crimson work? No, we're not gonna get into that. That is a very dumb complaint, in my opinion. Yeah, so that's answer. We answered it in the manga fight, but uh, <laughs> Diavolo as a villain is most certainly not as compelling as previous villains. I like him better than Cars just because of his uh, split personality angle and the relationship between him and his alter ego, Dapio, is rather interesting, as well as, you know, his relationship to Trish and just general, like, all-consuming desire for anonymity that drives his actions in the story. But definitely in terms of personality, in terms of, like, 
presence. He just doesn't have the same weight as Dio or Yoshikage Hira or later villains. Yeah. So he is not as as like formidable a threat, and I definitely think that hurts the part. Well, maybe not. His threat is weak so much as his his like he just doesn't stack up to the immediate villain that came before the immediate two. Yeah. But another thing, I guess people take umbrage with besides the fact that Giorno. Uh, just didn't have much of a character is that Giorno also has the same kind of Jotaro-ish problem in that his stand seems to be able to do just whatever the plot demands. Especially near the end. Especially near the end when he gets Gold Experience Requiem. The Requiem Requiem stands, uh, for those who may not know, are happen when a stand arrow pierces a stand, and that imbues them with extra power and creates what's called a Requiem stand. So I guess uh, for a little bit of context, Polderef is also in this part, and he kind of brings up the idea of the Requiem stands. So initially, they're trying to hunt down Silver Chariot Requiem, which can switch souls between bodies. So pretty much the whole final conflict of part five is everyone's in a different body and they're pretty much all trying to go after Silver Chariot Requiem to take the stand arrow and whoever is going to get the stand arrow is pretty much going to win. Because once you have a Requiem stand, you're kind of OP. Yeah. So the the concept of Requiem stands didn't sit well with people because their powers were just so overpowered and Gold Experience Requiem, as we've alluded to before, it has an ability that resets everything to zero, making like it able to really It can pretty much negate anything. the power of any stand. Exactly. It's any like, action. It's like Asta's uh, anti-magic in Black Clover. No, it's really not like that, because that <laughs> has limits. This has no limits. Yeah. As, we, as we've as we seen in like the expanded lore and questionable canon stuff in JoJo, it can survive some crazy stuff. It can survive universes blowing up, characters that are pretty much immortal, and really anything. Because yeah. resetting to zero pretty much means you can reverse anything that causes an effect on someone. Yeah, that's true. So that's another huge problem people have with it. And also, generally, people feel that fights are a lot messier and a lot more convoluted than in previous parts. I really don't see it. Yeah, me neither. I think there are a lot of really cool fights in Part 5, like the Grateful Dead, the fight on the train. That is one of my all-time favorite fights in JoJo's. Uh, in general, Buccioletti and Misa get some really great intense fights, but even Giorno gets a really great one against uh, Shao Colada towards the end. Yeah, and I mean, I'd say the whole criticism of Part 5 going back to the whole kind of monster, well, I guess, villain of the week type structure is like, understandable, but at the same time, it's done differently than Part 3. Because after Part 3, Rocky started developing stands a lot more and making them more untraditional. And so most of the kind of Villain of the Week stand fights in Part 5 are very kind of different. Like we have ones like Green Day, where Green Day's ability is literally every time you go down an elevation, your body will start molding. So you have this whole conflict where Giorno and his team have to pretty much 
go through an entire city without walking downstairs, without falling or anything, and all to try to kill this guy who's at the top of the city. Yeah. It is like stuff like that that, even though part five is by no means my favorite part, it still does some very cool things. Yeah, I think part five has a lot of strong points to it that some of its detractors don't give it enough credit for. At the very least, I think the supporting cast is really strong, and I think it has just so many memorable fights and moments. I think that no one can deny just how awesome uh, Dapio versus... What's his name? Metal uh, the guy who uses Metallica. Yeah, King Crimson versus Metallica. I should rather say that's ju- that is universally considered one of the highlights of Part Five and the series as a whole because Metallica's power that which can draw out the iron from anything, including the iron in your own blood, and use it against you. It is an insane power, and seeing like Dapio the inept, ultra eager. Alter ego of uh, Diablo try and out defeat like this really intimidating like dude with this insane power is really interesting to see. It's, yeah, especially since he doesn't even have the full power of King Crimson, but just <laughs> epitaph. Yeah, and I think like while we have been going through a lot of criticisms of Part Five, I think we should clarify while Part Five is considered a very divisive part. That's mainly outside of Japan. In Japan, Part 5 is the second best-selling part of JoJo. Pretty much almost reaching the same level as Part 3. Yeah, I mean, it got its own video game. It was that popular. Yeah, like, Part 5 is very much huge in Japan. Which is why I'm not concerned about how, like, an eventual Part 5 anime will do. Mm -hmm. Because regardless of how people outside Japan feel... As long as it's doing well in Japan, we're going to get part six. I do hope, though, that they don't try and make it two seasons, but rather like another oh. street court thing like uh, part four. Yeah, if they do two seasons, I really hope that they're going to adapt the Golden Ring yeah. and Purple Haze feedback. That's the novels. only way I would like be yeah. comfortable with them doing that, because otherwise yeah. we're going to have the same kind of complaints people had with part three. Yeah, and honestly, I- I'm kind of hoping that they do adapt those novels. I mean, they didn't adapt the Stardust novels. But to be fair, those are very much kind of filler novels. Yeah. Like, the Part 5 novels are kind of generally considered to be very kind of... They're very character development focused. So I feel they would be beneficial to add to the kind of Part 5's overall narrative. I feel like, if anything, they would probably relegate those to OVAs, maybe. Yeah, I I just want them animated in any form. Yeah. I, I feel that Fugo is such an useless, an unnecessary character outside of those novels' context that without adapting those, I feel there's no point in even keeping him in the story. But I think we've said our piece about Part 5, so let's go on to arguably the best part of JoJo's. I thought that was Part 7. I'm not so sure about... Yeah, I'm not so sure about this scene. Well, it's, I would consider it the best part of JoJo's. This is my second favorite for the record. That is Stone Ocean. Notable in many respects. One, it is the first part, part that was rebooted in a sense because originally JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, uh, the first five parts, they didn't have, they weren't broken up into sub 
arcs are, uh, and they weren't labeled as being divided into different parts. It was one continuous volume release. It was release. one continuous volume release. But with part six, the series gained a sub, the series was dubbed JoJo part six, Stone Ocean, and then retroactively subtitles were added to the previous five parts. Yeah. And this was mainly due to the fact that Shueisha felt that after part five, that JoJo was kind of losing steam in terms of bringing in new audiences. So they wanted Araki to take some time to think it over and see how we can sort of, I guess, reboot the franchise, but still make it a sequel. Yes, but and they also wanted to make it accessible to new readers. So yeah. they restarted the volume count from one. Yeah. Uh, they wanted to really sell this as kind of like a new kind of series. And in many ways, even though part six is part of the continuing like story, it does feel a little fresh from previous dojos in many regards, particularly because it's the first and currently only part to feature a female main character, which at the time was where uh, almost unthinkable because it's something like Jump really never had for a battle manga before because at the time it was still felt like taboo to have female characters take a punch. But Araki during his time on the series and had kind of developed the idea that men and women had the same capabilities and he could really draw a tough female main character. So we fought for the idea of having a female main character as the main character part six. And I really have to applaud him for that because that makes Jolene one of the very few, but also one of the most first and most progressive examples of a female main character in a Shonen Jump battle manga. Yeah, I mean, it definitely seems like this kind of a lot of this stems from the fact that he was dabbling with a lot of ideas of bringing back the idea of strong female characters with Trish, and this is very much natural evolution of that. <laughs> and having a Having a series that is very much, I'd say, I guess a dominant female cast in a way, even though the main cast ends up being 50-50, half female, half male in the end. But yeah. even then, that is the highest female ratio in any JoJo part to date. At least in terms of having combatants. Yeah, in terms of combatants. Because and- I think that part... Eight also has a good ratio yeah. of female characters. Part eight has a large amount of female characters. I think, but... arguably, it might has more fighters in a sense. Yeah, but we'll we'll get into that later. Yeah, but, but I, I'd say the whole idea of making female characters more prominent in part six was definitely one of the things that was a good aspect of trying to reboot the franchise. But I'd say there were also a lot of problems. With trying to make Stone Ocean into a reboot from a narrative perspective? Yeah, I mean, the thing with Stone Ocean is that it very much is heavily tied into the lore of previous parts. So there are a lot of things that I think make it maybe the least accessible part as a standalone work. Because it relies so heavily on knowledge of previous parts and it pays off on so many plot threads of previous parts. From Stand Arrows to the rivalry between the Joe Stars and Dio to this, even the long-term thing with the Stone Mask. And Dio is the true goals, which are finally fully explained in Part 6. Yeah, and this kind of goes back to the whole concept of like Araki thinking of his parts as trilogies that Sim was mentioning in the, our Part 3 discussion. Where parts four through six are very much about, partially about the standards, but overall mainly about Dio's legacy. Yes. And part six is very much the culmination, the final bout 
against Dio's legacy. Yes, again, and the main villain of Part 6 is Dio's most devout disciple and implied lover. And uh, the only person he ever truly considered an equal. Yes, Enrico Pucci, who is... Uh, this priest who very much believes in this idea of predestination and fights against irrational and wants to fight against irrationality and bizarre chance in the world. Like, yeah. he, what's great about Pucci as a villain is that he wants to destroy everything that makes JoJo's the universe so innately JoJo's. He wants to take the bizarreness out of JoJo's bizarre adventure. He also wants to take the JoJo's out of JoJo's bizarre adventure. <laughs> Literally. And create a world where everyone knows what is going to happen to them in their lives. Because his story, Pucci's story, Pucci, to me, is my favorite one because he has the most depth and most complexity to his motivations. And his backstory, his history, why he believes so strongly that people should be able to know and they should know what's going to happen to them in their lives and make peace with that is due to his tragic experiences and also like his relationship with Dio and what he aspired to do. But Pucci isn't doing like what he does for Dio's sake. He's doing that in honor of Dio, but he's very much pursuing his own ambitions, which is what Dio would have wanted for him, as since Dio did see him as an equal. But yeah, I mean, Pucci is just a fascinating character, and Araki designed him to be the last boss, whether it's because part six would prove to be unpopular, yeah, or yeah. because he always intended part six to be the conclusion of the series. Uh, he intended Pucci to be the last boss, which is why he gave him, like, so much connection to Dio. And and really gave him the most overpowered stand in all of JoJo. A literally world-changing stand. Not even world-changing stand, universe-changing. Yes. Part 6, there's so much good to talk about, but I'd like to refer people... Back in the day on Animation Revelation, I made, we, I collaborated with my friends to make a top 30 anime manga story arts list. And for a JoJo's arc to represent the series, I chose Stone Ocean. Because I think that best encapsulated everything the series does well, as well as paid off on all its long-term thematic and thematic, uh, arcs and uh, messages in a very profound and meaningful way. And I'll, I'll maybe leave a link to that in the description. But yeah, I mean, just part six is my personal favorite part because it is the culmination of JoJo's and it is literally a story about the very world of JoJo's itself and fighting for what makes that world what it is against someone who believes that the way the world is is inherently wrong, which I found really interesting, fascinating. And of course, the ending of part six is utterly tragic, but yeah. at the same time, very bittersweet in terms of the character arc of the resident child character of this part, Emporio Alino. And it is very tragic, like the final scene. My name is Emporio. <laughs> you got, when you see that, when you see, when he utters those words, like you, 
you bust out a tear. It's oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, even <laughs> though. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. literally the final chapter. Oh, what a wonderful world. That's the name of the final chapter. I, I really hope that when this eventually eventually gets animated that they uh, that they shell out the money to license that song. I they better I absolutely hope so. They they got to. Either that or stairway to heaven. I could accept them not getting get back for the ending of part of the last episode of part three, but they have to get oh what a wonderful world for at least the last episode of part six. Yeah. Because that that is just the way to end it. Yeah, I mean going go going through the whole thing about uh, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Stone Ocean being the most least popular part of JoJo, even though it was ranked pretty much near the bottom of the magazine consistently throughout its entire run. Araki was bringing his A game the entire time. Yeah, that's, he, that's, that's he, really pretty, weird to hear, actually. Yeah, like I, I was surprised by it too, to be honest. But if you go, we have like records of all this archived online like people have archived table of contents back through i think 1999 at this point part six is like the only i think part where we have documented table of contents for the entire thing and it's pretty much at the bottom for most of its run early on it's near the top where i think jump was really pushing it but i think at some point they kind of just let Araki do what he did and just like let it flow until the end yeah but regardless of that Araki was bringing his absolute best. He was developing all the ideas he had brought from part five and part four and pushing the new heights. We get like pretty probably the most revolutionary, I'd say evolution of stands through the character Foo Fighters, which I'm not going to go into too much detail about Foo Fighters since I already rambled a bunch about her in the manga fight that'll mm-hmm. come out. So you just listen to that for that, but. There's a lot to talk about part six that I just kind of don't want to spoil. Yeah, just there's so just so much in here that I feel is very much hard to even explain without going into way too much detail. Yeah. And go- getting to the point where it kind of just lose your enjoyment. In terms of plot, this is by far the most dense I mean, maybe not, maybe compared to part eight, not so much, but like as of the original timeline, yeah. this is e- easily the most dense in terms of the plotting and in terms of the character development and everything going on in this part. Yeah, I mean, people complain about part three and part five being very like episodic and stuff, but part six kind of throws all of that out the window. Yeah. It is a story driven part, which really hadn't happened even purely until like, since part two, really. Because yeah. part four still had elements of episodic fighting. Yeah. And I will say, even though part six wasn't originally popular during its Shonen Jump serialization, I think in recent years it has at least attracted a cult following. And definitely I've seen a lot of fan art of this part in particular. And I think it has grown a lot more popular in years since. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't think there's any part of JoJo now that is legitimately hated or no one cares for. Maybe part five. Every part of No, even part five, <laughs> I'd argue, still has a large fan base in Japan still, because oh, it was yeah. huge when it came out. I mean, I'd say outside of Japan, I think it's I've heard it's popular in Italy. Oh, for obvious sense. reasons, but yeah, I mean 
there's a demand for every part of JoJo. And part six has definitely been one of those parts where, sure, it wasn't well-loved when it came out, but it has kind of gained a cult following over time. And I'd say, like, in our current state in, like, the JoJo fandom, part six is kind of the underrated gem yeah. among the parts. I think mainly because a lot of people haven't bothered to check it out because it's so reliant on having read the first five parts of JoJo. Yeah. But it's definitely the ultimate homage to JoJo fans. Yeah, but though I think critically, I think this part, I think part six has been getting more recognition in recent years. Part six definitely has a claim that is close or if not equal to the following part. Yeah. I'm going to be really interested to see how the perception of it may change when it finally gets animated. When we get to, like, 2020, when we eventually get, like, a part six anime, I'm going to be excited to see everyone's reaction. Because not only is it progressive in its own right in many ways, but it is also just, like, a huge, like, shift for JoJo's in terms of plotting, in terms of the depth of its teams and what it explores. So there's... People love JoJo's for, like, the style... But this part has so much substance to go along with it, too. I mean, even beyond that, like, Araki's obviously been pushing the boundaries and jump since part one. And in part six, he's pushing them even further. Yeah. I think, I think maybe part of that was the fact that Araki was very much planned as to be the end of JoJo. Yeah. So I think Shueisha and Jump were kind of very lenient on what he could do. Yeah. Like, especially the ending. Yeah. The ending. <laughs> The ending, I don't think he could have pulled off the, if you hadn't been, if JoJo hadn't been such a big series yeah. as it had been. But, but yeah. yeah. So JoJo effectively ended with part six. At least that was the plan. And so Rocky's next manga, Steel Ball Run, while it had many references to JoJo, it wasn't originally intended to be a JoJo part. But, Eventually, after a 17-chapter run in Shonen Jump, it was later moved to Ultra Jump, uh, where it became serialized monthly. And after it moved, that's when it gained the subtitle, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Part 7 Steel Ball Run. Now, I don't know if that was done because of an editorial push, or because uh, Steel Ball Run was unpopular in Shonen Jump, and so making tying it into JoJo's was a way to attract fans of JoJo's to the part. But regardless, because part seven wasn't originally intended to be a JoJo's part, it does have a very different feel from the start. And even when you start getting the stands and other things introduced into it, it still has a really different feel. Like the alternate universe, it feels like it's a different universe you're living in. This isn't the JoJo's you knew anymore. And it's not just a simple shift from shonen to seinen. There's a whole dramatic shift in terms of art style, in terms of the maturity of the drama, and the weight of the teams. It is definitely Araki, like, at his most refined. And, like, having taken all the skills he has honed in 20 ish years working on the first six parts and now taking it to the next level with Steel Ball Run. Yeah, Steel Ball Run in my opinion is what Shueisha 
tried to do with part six. Mm-hmm. Part seven is very much what is capable of bringing in both new fans, but also maintaining the old dedicated fan base for JoJo. Part seven is very much, I guess, technically a reboot of part one, except it's very different from part one in many it respects. It barely, res- it doesn't resemble part one in any way whatsoever. The only similarities this has is that there's three characters that share names with yeah. part one characters. Yeah. It also doesn't take place in the UK. It takes place in the United States. Good old America. America. Yeah. So to give the very, very simple summary of part seven. It is about a horse race for the corpse of Jesus Christ, and the president wants to get the corpse of Jesus to make America great again. Pretty much. Yeah, he he already sounds like a better president. <laughs> <laughs> but there, this is pretty much what I feel when Iraqi entered a very experimental stage mm-hmm. in his career, which has continued on up through Part Eight and where we are now, where he's. He's taking elements, like the best elements from the original timeline of JoJo, and he's completely kind of changing them up. We have Johnny Joestar, who is supposed to be our counterpart to Jonathan Joestar from Phantom Blood, but he is taking a completely different direction. He is a very morally complex character. He is not honorable. He is not a good person by any means. And this is very much the ultimate contrast to what Jonathan stood for. Johnny is selfish. Johnny cares very much about himself, and it's very the story of Stillborn is very much about his journey and kind of starting to care about others and also gain more confidence in his own life and stop feeling depressed about his own life. He's also physically disabled. Yes. The physical impairment of Johnny Joestar is also a very important aspect. And that also is very much reflected in his own actions in the story. Even though Johnny Joestar is a paraplegic, he's still very much independent. He stands on his own. He fights on his own. He doesn't really need help from others. And I'd say that that's also kind of a very good writing choice on Iraqi's on Iraqi's part, mainly because he's kind of showing this very even in the face of adversity. This character can pretty much handle these great challenges in front of him. Mm-hmm. And of course, out of any of the JoJo parts, <clears throat> Steelball Run pretty much embraces the whole kind of protagonist kind of motif, where since this is partly due to the fact that Steelball Run originally wasn't a JoJo part, so the one of the characters, Gyro Zeppeli, which represents the return of the Zeppeli family, he very much shares the kind of protagonist role with Johnny Joestar, and they kind of bounce off each other, where Johnny's a selfish character, and Gyro's a selfless character, and their traits all intertwine with each other, and they gain respect for each other's ideals, and that makes them better people as they move forward throughout their journey and throughout the race. And even beyond, like, our main character's Steelball Run probably has the best developed supporting cast. Yeah. Between Diego Brando, Hot Pants, uh... Wait, there's a character named Hot Pants? Yeah, yes. she's, and she's a very interesting character, too. Okay, you have my attention. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, she has this whole story with her sister, and then, like, she's this nun. She pretty much came from uh, England around the same time as Jairo Zappelli, and one of her siblings, when she was younger, she had left to die when some, I think it was, like, some, like, robber or burglar attacked them. And for her entire life, she had regretted this choice, and she wanted to use the pretense of the race to get the corpse of Jesus Christ to pretty much reset her sins to zero. And this is actually very similar to what Johnny wanted to do, which makes it so interesting, is that both these characters have these big regrets in their life that they feel this getting this holy corpse will solve. And it's all about this drive that they, it's not necessarily about them wanting to feel better about themselves. They just want to stop feeling bad about themselves. Mm. They just want to just reach this neutral state where they just feel no pain, but they don't need to necessarily feel happiness either, which is such an interesting, I feel, concept that Araki really hadn't explored in previous JoJo parts. And I think that's mainly brings to pretty much part seven strengths of being a very character focused part of JoJo. Right, and I again, one of my favorite characters of Part 7, and I think one of the best female characters in the series, is Lucy Steele, who is this 14-year-old girl who is married to the uh, conductor of the Steel Ball Wrong Race. Stephen Steele. Stephen Steele, who is like this elderly man. But they have this kind of platonic relationship that, as you learn more about it, is actually kind of innocent and sweet. Yeah. But uh, Lucy Steele, you know, gets involved in the whole court's part of conspiracy, and she has to fight for her life to, you know, help Johnny and Gyro and, like, stop Valentine's plan. And she throws herself in a lot of danger and gets into a lot of crazy situations. And she doesn't have a stand or anything. So, you know, she... It's... Very much like uh, Hayato in part four, where you have this really weak character uh, who is very defenseless, try try their best to fight against really powerful enemies by getting close to them and, you know, trying to help the heroes from a distance. And she has this very great story, and she is, like, a very compelling character who, like... She has probably the happiest ending out of all the main I guess. I mean, one thing about Lucy Steele's character that I really like is that she is a character with no power that tries to face off against these strong villains, and she gets results. Yeah. Like, I guess this is kind of a minor spoiler, but she delivers the final blow yeah. in Steel Ball Run. And it's very satisfying. Yeah. So uh, her her entire story is very much a struggle. I wouldn't say it's necessarily happy, in a way, because she has to go through some very traumatizing stuff. Yeah, but compared to the other characters, where she leaves her story off at, like, she she's, like, kind of gets, like, re- a return to kind of normalcy in her life. Yeah, I'd say that's true, because, for the record, Steelboat Run is by no means happy. It's, I'd say it's more bittersweet, not necessarily completely depressing, but a lot of these characters do not end up with, like, they don't have happy endings. Johnny Joestar is easily the most tortured of the JoJo's. Yeah. And his, even when, when you and come to part eight and you learn what happened to him after the ending of part seven, and it is super depressing. It pretty much teaches you, 
Do not mess with Jesus' corpse. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus is not a good person. Huh, that's that's a, that's a very valuable lesson, I'd say. Yeah, so part seven, like, critically acclaimed, highest-ranked JoJo's on most aggregator sites. Yeah. And between the, in the community in general, it's widely considered the best part. Personally, part six is still my favorite, but part seven is a close second because it is just so excellent. And it is really a Rocky at his best with some of his finest character writing and uh, exploration of teams in the work. Yeah. I mean, like I said, part seven is my favorite part of JoJo, but part six is also super close. And that's really, I think, comes down to the fact that around part six, Araki just is at his absolute best and is really only getting better in some respects. Like, I feel this is, uh, once he hit around part six, he felt, I think that's where he kind of got to the best of being able to write good and fun fights and started focusing on improving his storytelling and character development skills. Yeah, that's, that's, that's definitely something I think um, throughout my uh, anime watching experience has been kind of my like my least favorite part about JoJo is I I like like you guys said I've always really loved the style of JoJo like JoJo for me so far has just been really a hodgepodge of like creativity and a lot of really neat ideas but unfortunately I've always felt like you know while while I, while I do love some characters in JoJo so far. I I also do think that yeah a lot of the characters up to the point where uh you know where it's been animated have been mo- mostly kind of underdeveloped in a lot of ways which is unfortunate and his storytelling at at the point where I'm at could st- I mean it's it's still good here and there but it, like every every part of JoJo's and I'm not sure maybe we'll get to this later but uh this is actually part of the reason I have such a hard time picking my favorite part out of the parts I've watched is that there there will always be certain aspects of certain parts that I really love, but like everything else kind of pales in comparison, unfortunately. Like it's it's never for me, it's never all the way good, I guess, if that makes any sense. Because mm-hmm. yeah. there's cause there's always there's all there are always aspects of every arc that I've seen so far that kinda that kinda hold it back for me. Yeah. I mean, to to be fair, part six and part seven still have flaws and there aren't big flaws, but there's still problems, obviously. But I feel when you get to around part six and part seven, around that range is where a lot of the problems in JoJo's start to be so, so minute compared to the great and very, like, high pros about the parts themselves. Yeah. But we have one final of the parts to talk about. The final part, uh, so far. Part 8, which is currently ongoing, Jojolian. And, uh, this is perhaps the strangest part yet, but also it, it, it might be the most engaging in terms of the mystery of it. Yes. So, uh, I'm not sure how far are you in part 8, said. I read, I've read up to chapter 50. So, so I've read past Joshu defeating the guy who can turn anything into money, but the money is all the same, so it's worthless. Okay, so you pretty much got through the first half of the series. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean that by, like, pretty much we're considering Damo Tamaki's defeat the halfway point of Part 8. I mean, it's hard to really say that when we don't know 
like how long longer Jojolian will go on. Mm-hmm. But that's the thing with Jojolian is that like even though it's been running since 2011 at this point, yeah, five years, like it doesn't. It feels like there's so much more story to go. Like even though there's like already as many collected volumes out as there are volumes of parts three, like I think there are around like fifteen volumes out or something. Yeah, fifteen right now. Yeah, so like you know, even though it's already as long as like some of the longest, some of most JoJo's parts, like it feels like we're only we're not we're maybe only in the midpoint of the yeah. story. Or, like, it feels like there's just so much more mysteries and just so much more that has yet to happen because there are just so many things going on in Part 8. Yeah, and I I think for context here, Part 8 is about a guy with four testicles who has amnesia and is fighting rock people to get magic fruit. And he's also a fusion between Josuke and Yoshi and Jotaro. Well, it's kind of confusing there. Because technically, in the in the Part Eight universe, Holly Joestar married Yoshikage Kira's father, so and they gave birth to Yoshikage Kira. Yeah, so <laughs> Jotaro and Yoshikage Kira are one and the same, and join in the SBR one. And then we have another character who resembles Josuke, and he's called Josefumi Kujo. Mm-hmm. So pretty much the Kujo family became its own separate thing. Yeah. And Josuke Higashikata from Part 8 is a literal fusion of the two characters. Yeah. Okay, can I can I just say, guys, so far this all makes perfect sense. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and if, if this doesn't seem strange enough already, the whole kind of structure of Part 8 makes it even weirder. Unlike previous parts of JoJo, Part 8 isn't really a battle series in many senses. It is more of a mystery thriller. Like, so far there's probably been, I'd say maybe three direct physical fights in Jojo Lion. And the rest of it's mainly been them seeing these mysterious powers, trying to figure out why these stain users are attacking them, what's their purpose, what's the purpose of all these different elements, who are the rock people, what are the magic fruit... Who is Josuke? And it's really interesting. And that, this kind of goes back to my point that I feel Rocky has kind of entered a more experimental stage of his career. In that he's trying all these weird things. Like, Part 8 is goes back to the setting of Morio. But it's a very different Morio. It's, it's less... It's less of more trying to be this, like, fun slice of life. It's being a more, like, I'd say more of a serious thriller mystery and taking the thriller mystery element of the whole Yoshikage Kira part of Diamond is Unbreakable and elevating it into the main focus. Hmm, okay. And this goes in a very interesting direction and to the point where I feel I don't know how Jojo Lion will even end. I have no idea at this point. Yeah. We don't even know who the real main villain is. is I mean... It- Kato? Is it jo- Jobin. Jobin? Yeah. Like, right now the main suspects are Kato and Jobin. And both are like very equal, could be, very equally be bad people. Yeah. And we know neither of them are necessarily good people either. I mean, Kato went to jail for killing a child. So. And we know Jobin's doing some sketchy stuff with kind of, I guess there was, uh, to clarify, there was kind of a main villain in the first kind of 
segment, I guess we'll refer to it. I guess this first segment was kind of about Josuke figuring out who he is. And this is where we are right now. Josuke knows who he is. But Jobin seems like he's has, like, a bigger scheme. Yeah. But I have to wonder if Jobin is just, like, working for someone else, if he's really working for his mother, Kato. And, like, because Kato, we really don't know much about her yet, but she seems very suspicious, and what she went into jail for, killing a child, also seems very suspect. And I also have to imagine that there's also just something about Jobin that makes me think that he's not the real mastermind. Yeah, and and there's so many... There's so many of these types of mysteries in Part 8. Like, there's this whole stuff with the Niji... Not the Nijimoras, the... The Gashikata family having a curse where, at some point in their lives, their children turn to stone. Mm-hmm. And the kind of head of the Gashikata family that kind of takes Josuke in as his, like, adoptive son, uh, Norisuke, wants to help Josuke kind of try to figure out how he can save his own family from this curse that's been plaguing them. And I think what's really interesting about Part 8 is that it really is a conflict within the members of this large family, the Akashikatas. And, like, this family is... Each member is so unique, and they're all really involved in the plot. Yeah, I guess I guess in that sense, you can think about it that Part 4 is about the large-scale community of the town of Morio, where... Part 8 is focusing on the more smaller-scale families in Mobile. Yeah, it's it's mostly focused on the Gashikata yeah. household in particular. It's fo- I'd say even beyond that, we're starting to get into more interesting stuff, where now that Josuke knows who he is, but he's facing the dilemma of, okay, I know who I am, but what can I do about it? I can't go back to being Yoshikai Kira. I can't go back to being Joseph Umi Kujo. I'm not them. I don't feel like I'm them. What is my purpose? Mm-hmm. And he's going, and he starts to remember about Kira's mother, Holly, and how she's suffering from a z- disease. And he's like, okay, I know my purpose now. I don't care what my future is holding for me, but I want to make sure that the people who are connected to those who I am a part of to at least be able to live happy lives. And I feel that. I think one of the big criticisms of Part 8 has been Part 8 Josuke not being a very developed character for the most part because of the fact that he's had amnesia for so long. But now that he actually knows more about himself, we're delving into a more, I'd say, deeper area where it's him. He's now trying to find the fruit and find the rock people, not for himself and for his own reasons, but for the people around him. He wants to help those who have helped him. Yeah. I think that's really all really fascinating stuff, and I absolutely love the mystery of Dijolian. Honestly, this could very well end up being the best part yet, and I think that just speaks to how great Dijojo's Bizarre Adventure as a series is. Even 30 years later, the series is on top of its game. It's as good as, not better than ever. Yeah. And that just speaks to how wonderful and awesome uh, Araki's manga is, and how awesome his writing and characters and art is in general. Like, JoJo's is such a special, unique series. There really is nothing else quite like it. It's just so... It can be so goofy and fun, but also really interesting and contemplative. It can be utterly 
bizarre and stupid, but also at sometimes really thought provoking and meaningful. And I just love that dichotomy and dynamic. That's just what makes JoJo's Bizarre Adventure what it is. It really is a bizarre adventure. <laughs> it is, it, there's no experience reading a manga like this one. And I just have to thank Hirohiko Araki Sensei for 30 plus years of this amazing manga. And I, you crazy diamond, I hope you go on for another 30. I love it. Yeah, so, I mean, so much. Jo- Jojo Lion is pretty much showing that Araki's not out of ideas. He's not going to be out of ideas oh, yeah. anytime soon. And I- I'm going to be honest here. Part 8 is right now my third favorite Jojo right now. Even though it's not finished. Just because of how great these first 60, I think, yeah, 60 chapters have been so far. Like, my, my top three, just for the records, part seven, part six, then part eight in that order. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like, Araki has been on his A game and maybe his A plus game, if we want to call it, <laughs> since Soto should started. Yeah. He's only been getting better. And it's just amazing to see that, that after so long, he still has so much to give his readers. And if he keeps topping himself with every part, I can only imagine just how incredible the part nine will be. I mean, there's there's so many directions you can take Jojo at this point. Because even if he wanted to, he could find ways to bring back literal characters from the original timeline. I think that's what's great about Zeus. It's that there are endless possibilities. There's, like, no limits in what... Araki can do with the series, how, what kind of genre he can make the series if he wanted to. Like, the JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is like a creator's dream in terms of creativity. You can do absolutely anything. anything, And I think that's just absolutely magical. Yeah. And at the same time, like, even part eight where it's not, JoJo hasn't been established in this kind of action series. You're still feeling the same adrenaline you were with those action parts. It just kind of shows that no matter what he's doing with these characters now, he understands what people go for in JoJo. What JoJo really means beyond just the simple fighting aspect of JoJo. What the core of JoJo represents. Yeah. JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. I don't think you needed us to recommend it, but uh, yes, it's... (laughs) Highly recommended. Read this series. It is amazing. We we spent about three hours talking about it. You better read it. Uh, more than that. Yeah. Almost four. Jesus. And with that, uh, I think that concludes our JoJo's Bizarre Adventure 30th Anniversary Retrospective. We went on <laughs> for way longer than I expected. <laughs> I mean, it, to crap. be fair... To be fair, it is JoJo. We were going to need at least three hours. Oh, I mean, and we yeah. could have gone on for another three hours if we really wanted to, I'm sure. Yeah, like, I feel so passionately about parts six through eight that I, I could go on for hours talking about them. I oh, love yeah. them so much. We only scratched the surface of what there yeah. was to talk about. <laughs> for but sure. that does it for the show. I want to thank you guys for listening. Uh, this was really fun to talk about. Uh, we will... I'll be answering Q&As at a later date. That will be its own thing. Uh, Q&A special will be coming out later this month, probably uh, Friday the 27th. And uh, yeah, look forward to that. Also look forward to our JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Manga Fight, which will be out yeah. next Friday the 20th. 
That was a great time. We had Maxi on on the show, debating it against Relord. It was intense, crazy. So uh, close. You, so close. Yeah, you will never guess how some rounds go. It was absolutely wonderful. It's it's about as unpredictable as a fight in JoJo. Exactly, <laughs> and that's just what made it so absolutely perfect. Once again, uh, we would like you guys to take our survey uh, give us some feedback. Let us know how we're doing and what you'd like to see from the show in the future. And also keep an eye out for episodes of Movie Mavericks, which me and We Lord host on All Comic Now. And look out for an episode of One Piece Film Gold coming out in the coming weeks. And with that, I think we should promote where you guys can find us. How about you, We Lord? Why don't you start us <clears throat> off? Well, the only place I'm mainly circulating right now is a Twitter at VLORDGTZ, V-L-O-R-D-G-T-Z. Yeah, I, I really just like retweet stuff and then occasionally comment on what I'm doing. Um, but if you want to talk about JoJo or Detective Conan or want to go through some conspiracy theories about those, I'm more than happy to do so because I'm obsessed with those. So, yeah. As for me, you can find me as at Yasha on Twitter, my anime list at Animation Revelation. I will note that I am on internet hiatus right now, so you won't see me posting much. However, if you want to get in contact with me, you can direct message me or PM me on any of those sites, and I will respond to you. And you may also, of course, follow my artwork at Gupta's awesome art blog on Tumblr. And as for me, Colton, you can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. That's S-N-I-P-E-R-K-I-N-G-323. And really, as for my other podcasts, you know, if you're a fan of Gintama by any chance, uh, you should listen to Life Lessons, the Gintama manga cast. We go over the Gintama manga in particular from the beginning as through the old Viz Media English release, which has been discontinued. But, you know, you could you could still read it and buy it, thankfully, out there if you want to. You know, check that out and maybe follow my podcast. That's Life Lessons, the Gintama Manga Cast at gintalifelessons.wordpress.com. I also uh, help co-host another podcast called One Podcast Prevails. Uh, essentially the same format as Life Lessons where we go over the uh, Detective Conan slash Case Closed manga uh, from the beginning. Except that manga is actually still being published by Viz and is a lot longer. So Yeah, uh, very long. <laughs> Just got through like a very great case in that recently Invis' release. Yes, yes. So, if you want to hear us talk about uh, Case Close last uh, Detective Conan, that's One Podcast Prevails. You can find that at onepodcastprevails.wordpress.com. But as for all comic in general, basically, you can find all of our podcasts at all-comic.com. You can also follow All Comic on facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore but if you want to, you know, follow Manga Mavericks in particular, you should really be following us on Twitter as well. That's at Manga underscore Mavericks if you ever want to tweet at us about JoJo or really anything manga related about the show. Uh, please do so. Please follow us, especially for the quickest updates about the podcast. And uh, you should really also follow us on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com uh, for any updates as well. And if you want to email us anything about uh, JoJo or any uh, any manga you're reading, anything about the show, um, again, you know, uh, we, we will be coming up with a JoJo Q&A special later in the month. So 
You still have time to send us JoJo's questions if you want to, and you can send those over at mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, please. That would We, we would be uh, very appreciative. And um, I think with all of that out of the way, we've been recording for long enough, but hey, it's JoJo. It kind of requires <laughs> three-plus hours. So we hope you guys enjoyed this episode of Manga Mavericks, and we hope you guys uh, enjoy our JoJo month. So, bye, guys. Sayonara. Later. Or as Bucha Lady would say, Arrivederci. Arrivederci.